This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. You have declared a subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. be guided by the numbers once again as we do sometimes 63 to me it's a number that really conjures just one thing i don't know about you well yeah i mean when you see the number 63 do i necessarily think about kennedy um i don't know maybe i do I couldn't really tell you. Like, I'd have to be in the moment of seeing 63 without any priming to really be able okay. to inform you if I think about Kennedy. I think maybe if I see November and 63 together, maybe. I don't know. Like, 11? Eh. Uh, 11, uh, 63, uh, which yeah, I think well, does have some sus numer- numerological significance, and Stephen King what knows What is it? it? Uh, oh, uh, yeah, because that it, show or that short story by him that became it was pretty lame it was pretty lame uh I didn't yeah watch not it. not only uh, did oswald kind of? do it but then like by thwarting it it ruins the world <laughs> i'm sure that sk Sorry, bean could tell alert. you like what the significance of that is i really should well, there actually like, there actually yeah. is uh there there is a book or an essay i believe called king kill 33 i forget the name of the author he was like a, mm-hmm. a more mid-century conspiracy writer but he and others i think even sk bain has alluded to the fact that it was like an elaborate oh yeah he has a whole book that's pretty much about it yeah he yeah uh, yeah yeah. Uh, like many people have alluded to it however as some might think uh if and and, you know maybe one day we will (laughs) dive into the masonic angle of uh Mm -hmm. of jfk but today i guess we're taking a slightly more uh social historical materialist i guess uh exploration of the assassination of our uh our our dear president john fitzgerald kennedy yeah it's much more down the middle kind of uh you know regretting that we didn't read uh sk bain's book about kennedy uh but uh we have something you know, uh, your standard, your more standard kind of uh, take, uh, almost like a meta-historical piece, you know, we're looking at mm-hmm. 
very archetypal down the middle analysis of this uh you know very workmanlike uh very you know pretty scholarly as these things go unlike sk bain there's an index there's like footnotes that are you know there's footnotes <laughs> yes. at all or peter schweizer uh, for that matter it's yeah, not just interviews so, with like the vulcan squad uh yeah <laughs> bragging about their crimes mm-hmm. words yeah so. but today i mean we've mentioned this book before and i think we thought it's it's kind of under it's underexamined, I think, both in, in the conspiracy world and in mainstream kind of, I don't know, political, sociological kind of discourse. Uh, and that is mm-hmm. Carl Oglesby's The Yankee and Cowboy War, which came out, what, in 1976. Mm-hmm. And I think we, yeah, we brought it up in our uh, our trial of Chomsky, basically, yes. I think because Lorenzo mm-hmm. A.E. wrote in the Chomsky and the Compatible Left essay, kind of quoted this book uh, at at length and positively juxtaposed it with Chomsky's own writings on the subjects of like left wing conspiracies and showed how uh, I think made a really good point in that even though Carl Oglesby never self identified as a Marxist or a Marxist Leninist or anything like that, I think he called himself a radical centrist. This book comes off as very Marxist, basically, in its analysis, right? Like, would you agree? Mm-hmm. In a lot, I mean, yes, at least, yeah, certainly definitely. in the types of language. He was and, like an, yeah, he was like an SDS guy. I think he even mentions Marx. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, he, like yeah, he does. He, times. he yeah. does. Uh, uh, yeah, in the beginning, when he, I think he talks about the importance of the American frontier to the development of American capitalism. Mm-hmm. He says yes, that that right. was something that Marx kind of, uh, not that, you know, Mar- Marx, uh, what's the meme going around right now? You know, like Marx failed to consider know. that a, a oh, Marx failed stuck to in consider, the Suez Canal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, but he did consider mm-hmm. it. Uh, but well, he considered the importance uh, of the Suez Canal. It was like you know, kind of a permutation on his words that he considered a boat getting stuck in there. Um, he did, you know, he did a offer it as a specific yeah. example. Um, uh, but I think well, that, it was like a companion to Marx. You know, let's be specific here. Like that, you know, offered it as an example. It wasn't a quote from Marx. You know, yeah, but. Yeah, that, that was, wasn't from a. Be, oh, I thought that was from something Marx actually. Wrote. It was from a companion to Capital, no, I think. You know, okay. but Marx did bring up the Suez Canal, um, but he didn't bring up the the idea of a boat getting stuck in it. But that was something that someone else extrapolated from. Uh, okay, so you know, okay. yeah. Well, uh, his influence yeah. just mm-hmm. makes everybody uh, uh, succeed at considering things. Uh, yes. We can say. Uh, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Um, uh, I think. Yeah. yeah uh, but but I think Oglesby he he does a very interesting and I think kind of creative sort of class like meta class analysis of American capitalism Mm -hmm. and sort of builds this epistemological framework for understanding American politics and even American parapolitics in a way Mm -hmm. that I feel is very I I remember reading this book several years ago it might have been in 2018 I feel like I read it early on in the Trump era and I found it to be extremely enlightening for what we were going through back then. And I I thought it was interesting that there was really like, I don't know. I mean, on on the one hand, the the dialectic that he that Oglesby describes in this book kind of permeates absolutely everything that we do. It's like the fundamental sort of red blue dialectic you know basically uh in american Mm -hmm. the the american political 
uh, sphere, but also at the same time, like that red and blue thing is almost like these are like superhero abstractions fighting each other. And it kind of obscures the actual like economic uh, social economic base of these two factions, which ultimately really are driven by different factions of the ruling class. So it's, it's not so much about, um, like the coalition of voters in like the base or whatever, but we're focusing Mm -hmm. on the people, the drivers of politics, which are business elites for the most part. Right. Along with a certain class of like exalted sort of intellectual, scientific, bureaucratic, managerial sort of class workers as well. Um, Mm -hmm. But like that, we're basically talking about elites more or less. Yeah, yes. and he breaks this down into basically two factions of elites, which he traces at least as far back to the schisms of the Civil War and suggests or postulates that they have basically kind of persisted and yeah. morphed somewhat, but kind of stayed more or less the same. And he presents this as the key to understanding the turbulent yeah. events this of the, the 60s titular- and 70s yankee and cowboy thing yeah it's very mm-hmm. yeah it's very dialectical uh definitely you're it's it's aptly said that it is extreme oh well yeah and the yeah. idea of a ruling of a capitalist ruling class being dialectically sort of pitted against itself or different factions in it being pitted against itself is an interesting thing that i feel like kind i don't know it's like it's some maybe sometimes that gets over exaggerated today in that like elon musk is gonna like beat all the capitalists we don't like and then make capitalism good and cool you know Mm -hmm. or there's a kind of maybe people that have more socialist leanings today would kind of just look at like the capitalist with a capital c as just like this like gigantic blob that doesn't really have like like contradictions within itself and i think if you look at it like on the one hand it it, that, that can be effective for mobilizing people to hate all corporations or whatever but it's also it's not a very dialectical way i think ultimately of looking at it especially when most of like the the forces of reaction have most and imperialism and capital and like global you know transnational capital have pretty much dominated most of the world with a few spots sort of resisting it or holding out or or you know kind of blacklisted from the system like uh dprk cuba iran syria but you know venezuela like there's maybe you know 10 to 15 countries you know you can't really say that china is like standing even though they're counterweight. not blacklisted they're certainly not blacklisted no uh, in, in a way iran actually too like, if you, you know not yeah yeah uh no, sorry, it was ahead. supposed to be less blacklisted but they're becoming you know maybe they were blacklisted again for a while tensions kind of flared but we'll see what happens there might be some jockeying but anyway uh yeah, yeah. you know but, they just well, did a whole it's big even thing. it's even China, interesting yeah. to think if you extrapolate this kind of dialectical framework to like modern global capitalism that you could even almost look at like the 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 tensions between china and the overall like u.s uh or i don't know atlanticist kind of elites as a, a, another kind of like yankee and cowboy war but happening a more on a global stage where they're both these well, kind that's of kind capitalist of... factions competing with one another but like that doesn't mean that the competition yeah. is like fake or that it doesn't have it doesn't have big consequences or you know i mean i think it's inevitable right with capitalism is always going to be about competition and attrition and mm-hmm. like a, a dog eat dog struggle 
basically. Yeah, and I feel like Oglesby, in a way, at least sort of presages that because... I mean, I feel like there's certain things that are like, like, are a bit problematic or uh, reductive about the idea of like the frontier as being this, you know, thing that really shaped like American. I mean, it's kind of like a, a reconfiguration of like the Turner, you know, frontier thesis kind of. I mean, he's much more critical and like he mentions the genocide of the natives and everything like that, you know. And he does. I think it's certainly true that like that has a huge impact on the nation of the, like, you know, on the United States as. Uh, it came to be, you know, in its uh, formation as like a political entity. But, you know, I think that he does presage the sort of movement of the frontier to like other countries, you know, to, mm -hmm. uh, you know, to Asia in particular. He's writing, you know, at the time of like, I think it was, it was like 1978 that this was written. Like uh, 76. You know, and 76. I think it was kind of published mostly uh, maybe in 77. But yeah, mm -hmm, yeah, right, right. at yeah, peak so, kind of like post-Watergate. Yeah. Actually, it's so interesting that this came out almost, I think if it came out at the end of 1976, um, it basically came out almost exactly when Hotel California came out. And I'm looking for the quote here. It even almost exactly quotes the last song, The Last Resort, which is about the closing of the frontier and mm -hmm. i think it's something like uh there is no more new frontier we have got to make it here you know and uh yeah. it's very critical uh, it's a very critical right. song says, though about uh, the settling of the, the frontier. american generations for whom the frontier is the fact that there is no more frontier and who mm -hmm. must somehow begin to decide how to deal with this that is an interesting idea and i wonder like how this formulation would apply to today because in terms of like at the atlanticist i feel like that is like one faction you know that would be the yankee faction would be like the atlanticist faction the one that's mm -hmm. looking to europe uh you know and to like the circumatlantic alliances versus the cowboy faction which is more based in the southwest and in california you know that is uh looking to maybe pacific orientation or you know to like uh some kind of like sovereignty like based on oil or and things like that you know uh different uh infrastructure and sources of of wealth uh, and different uh, different american identity based on you know the sovereignty of uh the and the sort of the potential of that uh area of the country but yeah th that's interesting uh, to think about how this would map to today because i feel like in a way that almost has changed where in the book you kind of see that the yankees sort of turn on the cowboys uh after first you know paying lip service to the idea of vietnam you know which is mm -hmm. a more of a cowboy operation and like as we'll yeah. see ogilvy's whole thesis is that like kennedy basically is killed for not like being enthusiastic enough or like wanting to disengage from the uh you know vietnam which is this you know cowboy endeavor which you yeah. know an ogilvy's you know reasoning is based on kind of this need for the frontier this sort of uh mythopoetic need for it that we you know why we need to go fight this war is sort of motivated by that but I feel that, like, in a way, those power structures have kind of shifted orientations on some level. You know, maybe it's not as simple as to say they switched, but I almost feel like the Atlanticist-like side now mm -hmm. is more about, like, uh, fighting wars in sort of far-flung regions or, you know, trying to build democracy, maybe. Uh, I mean, I guess you could say George well, W. Bush is probably a cowboy, and he started yeah, the Iraq uh, well, War. Well, actually, but Obama that's an was 
more that, Yankee, I would say. Oh, yeah, Obama uh, was definitely an Atlanticist Yankee for sure. He was definitely yeah. counsel on foreign relations all the way. Mm, the interesting thing— I guess he thing, wanted to scale down, but yeah. Well, Trump, I would say, he's probably a cowboy. Or maybe he's Trump a Trump is a cowboy, even though he's literally a Yankee. He— I think dispositionally and in terms of well, if, his like, base so of support. So far, it's a red-blue thing. Yeah, but it is odd that no, he's like, I, you know, I we got to build a wall and everything, and being very isolationist, at least in his rhetoric and like his way of thinking. You know, like he obviously like the whole idea of like Trump the dub is bullshit. Like, and uh, you know, yes, one of the yes. more infuriating ideas that circulates that like this you know person wasn't escalating wars like in many places in the world, but. His orientation was a lot less, you know, uh, interventionist and based on, you know, mm. in terms of that paradigm, like the frontier of a Vietnam type thing. That was not well, like you know Trump what though? In like, image or really, you know. Uh, yeah, but think so. about it. Think about it this way, because I think there there are a few ways that you could see him in kind of continuity with sort of the cowboy tradition in that he was much more interested in stoking tensions in Asia and South America than he was in focusing on whatever was going on in Europe and also, I guess, to an extent in Syria as well. But he was basically focused on, he did take in a, a more aggressive posture with Iran and China and Venezuela. He, you know, sort of bungled his way through trying to put Juan Guaido, you know, into Venezuela, which failed. But, and also, you know, I think uh, kind of turned around turn back the clock a little bit on the opening up to cuba as well and uh kind of canceled some of the, the yeah and i guess you could say things. syria is like you know a european colonial you know domain yeah you know yeah like, because that that war that, that war had intense uh interest Saudi. both libya and syria were you know that there are certain yeah, eu countries course. and the uk yeah. which were deeply mm -hmm. kind of invested in those conflicts and those are their kind of former colonial domains and obviously yeah. a lot of that has to do with like natural gas flows going to europe so I think, yeah, Trump was kind of like he had more of a disposition, which is kind of consistent with the cowboys throughout the Cold War of like a little more like who gives a shit what the Europeans think about what Western Europe thinks like they can fuck off. Yeah. Like basically Oglesby describes it as basically the cowboys sort of envisioning themselves as, you know, being a part of a civilization that broke from old Europe. Whereas the Atlanticists yeah. kind of implicitly believe that they exist in, con you know, as a an outflowing or a continuation of European, quote, Western civilization. I mean, they're they're both factions are basically Western chauvinists, but they kind of do approach it in somewhat different ways. And Oglesby says about like Vietnam, that the overwar in Asia has its internal American origin in the native reflex to maintain the Western frontier in the old terms and to do so at all costs, since our whole way of life hinges on the frontier. What the late blooming Yankee liberal critics of the Vietnam War refused to hear and recognize between the lines of the pro-war arguments of the more philosophical cowboy hawks was this essential point about the importance of frontier expansion in American life from the beginning. So I think, I don't think yeah, he's kind of uh, endorsing. That's square with, hmm. that's the judge well, square with Trump because you're Trump, right. so, I think much more symbolically is much more about closure I mean, build the wall. That's the opposite yes. of uh, expand the frontier. I mean, but the also, frontier is know, related to, uh, like, you know, uh, barbed wire and, like, cordoning off land and conquering. So, I mean, maybe yeah, it works. Yeah. Maybe that's an no, aggressive sure. gesture well, that could be seen as expansion through enclosure. But I don't know. Yeah. I think uh, that maybe I also, like, one, one thing that's interesting about the way Oglesby frames all of this is that he does show the capacity for 
these faction, these ruling class factions to sort of change their tune or change their mind over time. Like he basically talks mm-hmm. about how more or less, while they were not the more enthusiastic of the bunch to want to start a ground war in Vietnam, they were pretty supportive of sending advisors and special forces and weapons and things like that. Uh, to the GM regime, you know, in the early 60s. Mm-hmm. But then yeah. it was only after 1968 when they realized they really weren't, their economic interests were not disproportionately benefiting, and it was hurting some of the, you know, some of their other interests, which were more Europe-focused and basically, you know, threatened to basically yeah, undermine like his, the overall his, health of the empire. It's an and so then they, they switched. It's kind of like... Yeah, it's it's an interesting parallel between this kind of like special war paradigm, like where he just wanted to mm-hmm. send in special forces, you know, to very Obama. War. Oh yeah, exactly. And the drone, like the the drones, are kind of like the Green Berets or the special forces of today, mm-hmm. where it's like yes, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a way to fight, but you know, without necessarily committing uh, the same you know energy as a full scale war. Definitely, you can see the parallels in the orientation. Yeah. I, it also did it did make me think a lot about like what is the frontier today because this economic system does require sort of endless expansion if it's not going to fall into uh, you know inst- become unstable and sort of collapse on itself right I mean mm-hmm. that's a general dynamic that's a fundamental dynamic of capitalism and I think we've seen that where it's constantly searching out new markets to basically you know set up to create or i mean now we're you know having people like cut pieces of their skin off and sell nfts like you know like like if you think about you know in terms of like you know commodifying everything making new markets and i think that what this book is written right on the precipice of the sort of information revolution that Mm -hmm. created this whole new like strata of economic activity and information and stuff like that that has been commodified and weaponized and all kinds of other things and so i wonder if you know basically is the frontier today as john perry barlow said right Mm -hmm. when he declared the you know the independence of cyberspace that that was the new frontier so okay so that's actually a good example where john perry barlow is literally from the cowboy class basically right um Mm -hmm. and basically you know grew up in wyoming from like a mormon cattle ranching dynasty and went to an elite prep school not in the northeast but in colorado where bob weir Mm -hmm. also went and then but then he did go you know i think that is also a thing of sending these uh these cowboy tycoons sending their children back east to get a little bit of that that blue blood establishment credibility right like that's a you know that that's definitely a dynamic like on the west coast and the west in general especially further back because Mm -hmm. there was even less legitimacy like you know the railroad tycoon leland stanford had to like build his own college and fill it with eugenicists to like you know uh try to have a stab at their own prestige but nowadays if you think about like a, a prototypical cowboy um and even another cowboy augustus housley stanley the third because he came from like southern political royalty which would kind of get lumped in and oglesby's view with the sort of cowboy faction they ended up helping midwife this new frontier of inform of digital information 
and cyberspace, which is now being colonized all over again. And I mean, does that not make sense a little bit? Yeah. You know, I, it kind of check this thesis yeah, checks out a little true. bit. They, they always need a new frontier. And I think, you know, maybe the cowboys decided in uh, when they, you know, did 9-11 um, that, you know, we get, we're going to have new land wars in the Middle East and we're going to embrace our imperial mandate and go around the world. And I think just as in Vietnam, I mean, I think they got a lot out of it that things that don't necessarily get drawn attention to like it's not as cowboy trump would say it's it wasn't just about like taking the oil or whatever uh, or, you know it, it was it certainly wasn't sincerely yeah. about like finding wmds but it, it had a lot of like negative externalities and even you could look at like the iraq the second iraq war as a similar kind of trajectory for the yankee class who basically uh totally voted for it for the most part and like co-signed it when, you know, it was their opportunity in Congress to, to do so. But then when it started kind of spinning into this chaotic clusterfuck and, you know, we were like bleeding out kind of money. And, and once again, Western Europe was pissed at us for doing this. Like we almost forget now, I think, right, that like France and Germany refused to join our, our dope coalition of the willing. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it, it, it's like that even that level of like dissension feels like far. Yeah, that would be far out to see it so today. That. Like, yeah. But, yeah. you know, like that. So then. Even Hollywood started maybe making some things that were like a little bit anti-war. But you notice as soon as we got the kind of agreement that, OK, we're going to withdraw, which I think came in uh, 2007 or 2008, because it was Bush who signed the agreement, the status of forces that said, OK, in like four years, we're going to leave. It's like as soon as that was signed and they kind of got what they wanted that like, oh, right, we're going to we're going to cut bait from this place. Then it was like the Hurt Locker and uh, all this <laughs> shit. And then they started glorifying <laughs> the CIA who were doing the special war that the Atlanticists were super psyched about doing that. Like, no, right. no, no, I mean, wasn't the yeah, the phrase all of his like Obama's NATSEC people, you know, like we're using a scalpel, not a hammer, you know, and mm -hmm. that's exactly what the, of course their special war did kind of turn into not just a hammer, but like a chainsaw and like pretty bad ways considering who they armed to, as their like kind of proxy forces, um, yeah. you know, to, to rip apart various countries that we wanted to, uh, destroy. So, you know, either one is not good, but you can kind of see a bit of a continuity with it. And then for Trump to be basically, this cowboy and we will see their material links to even the characters and the and the companies in this book with donald trump though his exact link to this world is always tenuous at best but he kind of represented like a at that point a much more marginalized faction i would say of maybe cowboy elites and like petty bourgeois people that kind of align themselves with the cowboy entrepreneur kind of um you know uh, worldview and he rallied those people because, you know, we always say like the deplorables were not simply just a bunch of like poor people and poor white people in trailer parks. But it was like a guy who owns like a jet ski dealership and like, uh, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of thing. Um, you know, small business people that feel like the government's like out to get them and they just like hate the Clintons. And Trump is just like, yeah, like he's spouting that that kind of like Reagan throwback rhetoric that they just that that. You know, it feels good to them. Reagan, absolute cowboy president. Bush won't get too gone on it now. Yeah. But I find it interesting. He wrote this when Bush was CIA director before he got into the White House with Reagan. And I've always thought about the Bush family a lot when after reading this book and over the years, because I do feel that Bush 
was like this unholy like uh, synthesis of both uh, factions you, what, and that's yeah, why he was so fucking powerful yeah it is uh interesting because yeah hw seems much more like a yankee going by this like sort mm-hmm. of parlor game alignment a-, a w obviously is like the cowboyest cowboy ever mm-hmm. uh oddly mm-hmm. you know but hw definitely yeah and like all the yankee aspects like all the symbolical yankee aspects are so much more prominent like in him but and you know he might have been in a way like he was he like like it's like you know just how the mob would like send one of their young guys like out to la to like run the operation out there there's a feeling that he was like because he was sent down to texas after kind of a random place to go for like this ultimate like yale cheerleader skull and bones guy to go Mm -hmm. but i i personally believe that because uh his roommate i think it it was either at um his prep school or at yale was literally the son of the guy who was responsible for like recruiting cia agents out of the ivy leagues and stuff and just like what his dad was doing like hiding nazi money during the war and all all that kind of shit and working with uh you know um brown brothers harriman and the dulles brothers like i think that he was brought into the cia probably like right after graduating college and then he was sent down to texas and then later to miami and set up zapata offshore and was working i think out of the jm wave station in miami that was preparing for the bay of pigs invasion and was like running contacts with probably both like the wealthy oil people and people like george demore schilt who will come up uh later in this and all those people and basically was like the the eastern established the yankees man in houston and so mm-hmm. but then he was able to kind of like straddle this line he was never really able to convince people he was a texan even though he kind of yeah. you know set up his life there because he was just such a fuddy-duddy wasp but then he clearly trained his sons who became like the ultimate sunbelt governors like florida and texas to mm-hmm. be down home southern boys and like larp basically and so you have to wonder like i don't know but then in a weird way like I don't know. They're they're not exactly a canceled family, but you know, I guess maybe it was the realization that Jeb Bush. I, I I really don't know. Maybe people really felt like you know going in for like a fake fight with Hillary Clinton and just letting her win was kind of not in support of their best interests. So why not mm. you know throw out somebody that has a shot? And I don't know. I don't know. know. I don't well, know. did they? Yeah. I mean, did they think that he did? That Trump had a shot yeah i'm not sure I, i'm not sure that's really like what... you know i'm not sure if hillary thought that he did uh you know because no she no and of course you know she she's another one yeah. if you think about it even the clintons kind of straddled these two factions a little bit uh even yeah. though i think mm-hmm. they've ended up in the atlanticist faction kind of uh definitively like in from probably the presidency onwards but all that mina arkansas drug trafficking shit in the 80s that was that was mostly cowboy action that yeah was going well on. i wonder if hillary is distinct from bill in a way in, maybe like i mean a, bill there was a I feel like somebody Obama is a very like atlanticist type pivot and you know hillary was a big part of that i don't know yeah i yeah uh, I, she mm. was involved remember she was involved in that um that foundation that was like funding the christic institute in the 80s and yes uh, right. doing weird things like that i think that if i had to bet i would say obama and bill clinton were both recruited 
by the CIA in college because Bill was a Rhodes Scholar. <laughs> I think somebody who went to Oxford with him like claimed that in the 90s that Bill Clinton was recruited by the CIA at Oxford, which kind of makes sense if you think about like every Rhodes Scholar, like hmm, Rachel Maddow, Pete Buttigieg, like Bill Clinton. Like why wouldn't <laughs> they recruit them to be some kind of asset you know that's like it's such a prestigious thing you know they're probably going to go on to have a prominent career in something like why not just get them right there yeah and yeah obama too like uh i don't know uh you go to columbia uh where so many of the people we talk about have gone and Mm -hmm. all of them except paul robeson are sus uh but and pynchon i guess but anyways uh back to i mean that's just some (laughs) extrapolating towards today but the two biggest things in this that that oglesby is jumping on or focusing on is the assassination of jfk and the watergate scandal yeah these are kind of seen as two like coups basically Mm -hmm. like a coup Mm -hmm. and almost a counter coup by these two different factions like one uh you know dallas being a coup by the cowboys against the yankees and watergate being the reverse yeah that's kind of how it's uh framed as being or you know how he thinks it's gone down Yes, yes, Uh, exactly. Mm -hmm. He thinks that these were when the the machinations behind the scenes of of basically what he calls clandestinism, which is an interesting Mm -hmm. kind of term. I kind of like it. You know, the tendency towards like a a highly secretive, like compartmentalized sort of, uh, you know, political system. Because, you know, the meat of the book. Yeah, there's kind of this theoretical framework of like Yankees and cowboys that we can, you know, return to obviously throughout. Uh, But, you know, the actual meat of the book is very much, you know, it's it's uh there's an erudition to it uh and there's a the evidence is like well presented and he makes like a very good case like for both but uh you know it is like basically rundowns of either the kennedy assassination like and the motives for it you know but also the practicalities of you know why the official narrative like the warren commission narrative doesn't make any sense and also mm-hmm. watergate particularly there's a lot around and there's even an appendix in the version that i have going mm-hmm. around like the plane crash that dorothy hunt was in and why this was you know sort of uh, a uh you know sabotage plane crash you know set mm-hmm. up as part of as retaliation against howard hunt and i think dorothy hunt also you know uh was uh, i guess involved so Lots he has an interesting business. quote about uh that which i i found pretty interesting it was uh early on in the book around like page 25 you know, he's talking about Carol Quigley, who he borrows from a lot. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, so did Alex as, Jones, uh, at least back in the day. Carol oh, Quigley, he's... Tragedy and Hope, explained it all uh, in 1966. <laughs> yeah. I think he always well, said it. I, I, uh, yeah. You know, because this is kind of like the idea of like a group, you know, Carol Quigley says the John Birch Society. Well, this is uh, all goes to be talking, mm-hmm. but he's kind of summarizing saying the John Birch Society maintains that linked up with, if not actually behind, the international communist conspiracy is a higher level super cabal of internationalists of United States and Western Europe led here by Rockefeller Morgan Group and there by the Rothschilds, whose purpose is to create a unified world political order. And Cal Quigley writes, uh, this myth, like all fables, does in fact have a modicum of truth. There does exist and has existed for a generation. International Anglophile, uh, you know, uh, paging, paging Dr. LaRouche. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, an Anglophile network, which operates to some Anglophile extent the network. way. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the way the radical right believes the communist act. In fact, this network, which you may identify as the round table groups, has no aversion to cooperating with the communists or any other groups. 
uh, as you will see below, the Nazis, and frequently mm-hmm. does so. Uh, I think that's yeah. Oglesby who entered those brackets about the Nazis. But I find this interesting uh, on another level, too, because I'm, I'm tracking the kind of uh, symbolism of, like, Camelot that runs throughout this. Of course, you know, the Kennedy Camelot stuff and also this He mentions it a lot. Of, the, yeah, the yeah. Atlanticist uh, round mm-hmm. table, you know. As yeah, this, uh, yeah, the round know, table. Uh, yeah, I, I haven't yeah, round um, table used a, as much in describing this kind of network, though, like the things he's describing are very familiar to everybody, basically the Council mm-hmm. on Foreign Relations uh, and, and yeah, the people involved. Um, but yeah, he, I you think know, you mentioned he, the Rhodes Trust, like that's kind of what. Ah, uh, yes, he are, does. You know? Yeah, the Rhodes yeah. Scholar named after mm-hmm. Arch. Uh, you know imperialist uh butcher cecil rhodes yeah yes, and uh, right mm-hmm. yeah the original yeah the roundtable groups by quigley's detail report are semi-covert policy and action groups formed at the turn of the first decade of this century on the initiatives of the Rhodes trust and its dominant trustee of the 1905-1925 period lord milner their original political aim was federation of the english-speaking world along lines laid down by cecil rhodes so that you know it originally um included south africa canada australia new zealand india and the united states and yeah. the uk of uh, course this is yeah this is the part that i found to be interesting because this uh you know kind of goes back to what you're talking about before in terms of like the dialectical configuration of uh you know these groups and like of these factions within uh power it kind of reminds me almost of uh some stuff that we were talking about in our atlantis episode uh you know uh, with uh Guénon and like his idea mm-hmm. of like the counter tradition like the atlantean counter tradition how it's sort of uh at war with itself because it, it must fundamentally be you know uh but this i think is interesting take on uh you know or a good take on uh some of the topics that we deal with uh, we'll deal with in this episode and in the past uh, related to uh, conspiracy in general he says uh, what will be holding the round table functioning in the united states through its covert or through its cover organization the council on foreign relations is one focal point among many uh of one among many conspiracies the whole thrust of the yankee slash cowboy interpretation is in fact dead set against the omnipotent cabal interpretation favored by Gally Allen and others of the John Birch Society, basically in the respect that it posits and, uh, I guess, uh, a, a divided. divided. Yeah, it's a typo. Uh, socio-historical mm-hmm. American order, conflict-wracked and dialectical rather than serene and hierarchical, in which results uh, constantly elude every faction's intention because all conspire against each and each against all. Uh, mm-hmm. And this is like a, an interesting anecdote that he, mm-hmm. he uh, shares. Oh, yeah. This point arose in a seminar I was once in with a handful of businessmen and a former ambassador or two in 1970 at the Aspen Institute for Humanistic Studies. The question of conspiracy in government came up. I advanced a theory that government is intrinsically conspiratorial. Blank incredulous stares around the table. Surely you don't propose there is a conspiracy at the top levels. Uh, um, but yeah, uh, uh, you don't think the Bilderberg, alert, wait, wait, yeah. wait, you think the Bilderberg group is real or, you know, you, uh, <laughs> yeah, but, anyway. yeah. uh, but only turn the tables and ask how much conspiring these men of the world do in the conduct of their own affairs and the atmosphere changes altogether. Now they're all unbuttoned and full of stories. This one telling how he got his competitor's price list, that one, how he found out, uh, whom to bribe the other one, how he gathered secret intelligence on his own top staff. Routinely, these businessmen all operated in some respects covertly. They all made sure to acquire and hold the power to do so. They saw nothing irregular in it. They saw it as part of the duty, a submerged part of the job description. 
only with respect to the higher levels of power or on the national presidency, even though they saw their own corporate brothers skulking about there, were they unwilling to concede the prevalence of clandestine practice. Conspiratorial play is a universal of power politics, and where there is no limit to power, there is no limit to conspiracy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah 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 very that uh, very i think anybody uh, yeah that that rings so true that if you get people just talking about their bit like in the business world they are oh, unless it's something that's like blatantly a felony they're more likely to boast about you know yeah mm-hmm. con- conspiratorial things like but it's uh, it's unacknowledged it's just it's like there is this kind of like weird code of silence about it where right. you know among among colleagues and peers you can joke about these things but maybe you wouldn't tell the layperson because there's a kind of a pr image to uphold that the, well there are mm-hmm. certain rules and you just you just win by you know applying that good old protestant work at work ethic you know what i mean mm-hmm. and and surely not any kind of uh, yeah plotting or conspiring or anything like that and and yeah there is this like third rail at the top of government where for some reason people think what like that's that's wacky what do you mean people mm, yeah it's like no it's uh, like what you do all the time except probably at the aspen institute but like it, it's creepy to think that they kind of are able to kind of psyop the, if they're able to psyop themselves into not it being so normalized that they don't even realize they're conspiring sometimes mm. that's an impression i get though i don't know if that's actually how these people are when they're in private but you know it's that yeah i guess the idea of a conspiracy is just so poisoned that like the notion of it uh it's a very effective psyop like around the mm-hmm. no- idea of conspiracy theory i guess it was still like pretty much operative like at the time that this book was written in the, in the mid 70s uh that the conspiracy theory had this very negative connotation because mm-hmm. you know obviously it's being mentioned in the book but i think that like for whatever reason it's just reflexively associated with insanity even though it like you know makes perfect sense like uh yeah people would just like will develop ideas like a conspiracy of 50 plus people is impossible etc you know like uh i don't think that people really examine like why uh a conspiracy is something that yeah like uh, it's really true like even if you think of your own life like your own job your office you know there's always like scheming lying uh you know within families yeah, like with groups of teenagers, like social yes. uh, relations mm-hmm. of like right. kids. Little kids yeah. conspire with each other and talk behind each mm-hmm. other's backs. Of course, you know, it's yeah. And the very more innate. and the more at stake, the more Byzantine the conspiracies usually become. Uh, mm-hmm. One would say, you know, I think you know Kissinger compared. I think oh, look, I think Kissinger's remark was that like uh, academic politics were more brutal than or you know more uh, sort of uh, petty cutthroat. Than, uh, you know, cut th- yeah exactly cutthroat than uh you know national politics because uh there was less at stake but you know he definitely uh he did compare the two and and so i definitely think that yeah for whatever reason like this idea has become poisonous but people can certainly observe it if people really think about it it's you know it, it does uh, make sense i mean you know we can assess the theories uh, that are put forth in the book like on their own merits because there's a there's a range of them but yeah he uh i i think he sums it up also i think uh on page 25 
later where he says that the implicit claim is that a multitude of conspiracies contend in the night. Clandestinism is not the usage of a handful of rogues. It is a formalized practice of an entire class in which a thousand hands spontaneously join. Conspiracy is the normal continuation of normal politics by normal means. So yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think yeah. that's a really good way to look at it, uh, that mm-hmm. there's always things that are like happening in the margins right. that aren't, uh, as Chomsky would say, like when, you know, a, a group of serious engineers comes forward and says that World Trade Center 7 was uh, detonated by nanothermite, then perhaps I'll take a look at it. But until then, you know, like, oh, yeah, OK, somebody has to like announce. And on also, National like, Television. how would he be able to assess? Like, that's the thing. Like, you know, when people say that, like, I don't really have a way like i'm not like a big controlled demolition guy but i can't really assess because i'm not an engineer and like if you look at the Mm. stuff that people say it's usually pretty nitty-gritty and they're saying things about like how it's physically impossible or whatever and like i don't really know so since chomsky doesn't know like how water comes out of a faucet i would not like you know i don't (laughs) think that he would be able to like you know assess like the you know legitimacy of like an engineering based argument uh, but whatever. Anyway, so yeah, yeah. I think that uh, it's always been there's always been conspiring. Think about you know the corrupt bargain of 1824, like the Tilden Compromise in 1876 yeah. that like mm. ended Reconstruction, the ended the affair. Yeah, the petty the the Teapot Dome scandal. Like we could just go on for days. Like of course people were, you know, uh, the Hunt brothers and the Hunt family pops up in this a lot, like cornering the silver market in 1980. Like these uh, people with power conspire. And I think Oglesby's right. It's like in a system where there's like absolutely no limits set, like the possibility. Yeah. Where there's no limit to power, there's no limit to conspiracy. So I think the checks and balances that we're told exist in the American system don't actually, you know, they in are fact, full you know what? of even, loopholes, basically, Even in by the design, musical Hamilton, uh, you know, the beloved uh, cultural lodestar of, like, everyone who tut-tuts uh, any kind of conspiracy theory, you know, and puts it in, uh, you know, puts, like, uh, believing that JFK was assassinated in, like, get help, like, immediately, danger <laughs> to self and others, uh, category of the pyramid, you know, there's a conspiracy depicted, uh, you know, where, like, Hamilton was, like, uh, the base uh, POC uh, hero, immigrant Hamilton, was uh, sleeping with, like, another guy's wife or, or whatever, and she, uh, he blackmailed her, and I guess, uh, you know, there was a whole thing where the uh, Thomas Jefferson and some others found out, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they tried to keep it, they kept it a secret for a while, but, you know, because wow. a conspiracy of more than 50 people is impossible, yeah. I guess uh, Hamilton eventually, like, admitted to it, like, tried to get out ahead of it. Well, then, what about, like, yeah. The American Revolution itself, I'm pretty sure it, I mean, eventually they went public with it, but yeah, for true. a while it was, it was a conspiracy. A, yeah, How a many people conspiracy. signed the Declaration of Independence? I think it was more than Yeah, 50. I mean, what about the, you know, the Boston Tea Party that was obviously organized secretly? Uh, it was probably people, only like about know? 25 people, so yeah, it was, so it was, it was possible. possible. So yeah, that makes sense. Okay. It's a yeah. very uh, sophisticated dialectical way of looking at it. But, you know, he, he also, he traces that it, okay, so you have these groups that kind of like stem really from the civil war the northeastern industrialists and kind of the remnants of the southern aristocracy and then the wild west or well i mean like really they go back further than that i mean the civil war was just like a manifestation of them they go back to you know the founding of our country and you know sure uh 
16, 19, uh, or whatever, you know, the, uh, right. Um, well, uh, yeah, but yeah. yeah, well, even as our country in like 1791, as it was like actually codified is, you know, that that's kind of the classic dialectic, uh, I believe right? The founding of, like, of America was in 1619. Uh, but anyway, uh, um, uh yeah. I don't read the New York times, yeah. so um, I don't know. Okay. I'm not, well, what's that? Uh, the founding um, of, I don't know, colonies, like it's, uh, I don't is that a thing people are really saying, like insisting that? I think like, that's like the idea of the 16. No, I'm like kind of joking, but I think that's the idea okay. of the 1619 <laughs> project. That that's like America's real founding. Like that's the big like provocation of it. Oh, uh, uh, I see. I see. You know, that it was like just that, like a Puritan yeah. slave colony. I don't know. Uh, yeah. Like, well, that was uh, the time when like slaves were first brought to what would become like the, yes you know, well in virginia I, so yeah i i, I think so. we can we can reasonably say that you know so that, that was the, where these you know these frictions originated uh sure but the, but then you know once we decided to to ditch the articles of confederation and you know write a constitution and everything that was put in there basically established this like dialectical republic of two different kind of socioeconomic systems where one was based upon it was still a little bit nascent at the end of the 18th century but you know based on industrial kind of output and manufacturing and farming and things like that and and i guess like a nascent form of like quote-unquote free labor which wasn't really that free but um and and basically not chattel slavery uh whereas the south was uh founded on that so eventually those there were certain contradictions within those two economic systems that you know blew up in the 1860s and then we entered into this new phase which i guess is you know we're still is it's kind of you know basically you could make an argument that you know uh, certain the real fundamentals of like our capitalist economy have stayed more or less uh kind of consistent with a variety of kind of upgrades and transformations, I mean, from like the 1870s to the basically the the real industrial boom of like the late 1800s and the first Gilded Age to today, uh, it's been like a why it's been a long, strange trip. But I feel like we haven't <laughs> fully um, like escaped that epoch now. Now that we've, I mean, once it's like America maybe had to have a unified economic system in order to. Uh, literally like conquer the continent and genocide everybody and take all the land and basically build this new country and then expand outward beyond that onto the international stage and kind of become like a capitalist sort of global empire that really I, I think the the civil war is like a, an incredibly crucial turning point of like consolidation of the of the of the economic order of the country and of course like I think that, in like one of the many supreme ironies it had to it had to preserve like white supremacy and racism while getting rid of the economic system of chattel slavery which was no Mm -hmm. longer uh working uh optimally i guess um i mean that's a very (laughs) it's like a very uh simplistic overview but yeah well it wasn't working it wasn't necessary for the north the north had become like capable of surviving without it and you know maybe there would have been like some consequences had it been allowed to continue but i think that you know yeah it uh created another center of power that needed to be uh you know i think that the like the sovereignty i mean the whole idea of the country being divided or succeeding was only possible because of like the slave economy 
Yeah, um, that was the know, main antagonist for the, from pretty much from mostly the southern perspective of like why they were so obsessed with states' rights and attempted things course, like nullification yeah. and you know were uh, always arguing every time a new state. I mean, it, it really kind of made the conquering of the American frontier a lot more complicated because every time you wanted to make a new state there had to be this big battle over was it going to be a slave state or a free state and then everyone mm-hmm. was angling to like uh, you know I forget what the compromise was that was like okay we'll do one you get one and then we get one yeah. and it was just like it was a whole mess and then you know you had people that were abolitionists getting increasingly radical in the 1850s you know people like John Brown like bleeding Kansas and all that stuff and then of course you had a lot of like vigilante like frontier violence from like pro-slavery mm-hmm. settlers and uh and then people like warring with uh, you know native american tribes and the army periodically going on kind of like you know uh ethnic cleansing campaigns and all of these different things and i i think that but yeah the fundamental contradiction of how are you going to settle the the west basically it needed perhaps needed that resolution that like no we're going to be a capitalist economy based on wage labor and private you know ownership of land and and you know also maybe to they still were kind of ahead of the curve or somewhat you know uh, i guess compared to most of the countries in europe in terms of uh gesturing at being a democratic republic i don't think it was as acute back then that they had to be we really had to outcompete other countries in the world in terms of being like the most progressive place that valued you know individual rights and stuff that was much more acute in the Uh, 20th century when we had some competitors in that field but it was still off kind of like doing our own weird thing i think that like that was a contributing factor i don't think that was purely cynical you know there was like uncle time's cabin and like the influence of sentimentalism and abolitionism like in in the north but there other also were like largely economic motives uh yes exactly uh, exactly that were Um, driving this uh and yeah there were underlying like uh you know material uh reasons that were you know in place from the founding uh we can't agree about you know we can't really pin down when it happened but at some point the united states uh was founded and uh (laughs) whenever it was uh those uh those tensions were present from the beginning because it was this polycentric thing there were two centers of power you know two ruling classes and 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 that frontier thing was like it was incredibly i think he makes you know a point that even just down to kind of like the existential level of or in the ontological level that particularly people that in the western united states like he said the you know the amount of i want to see where he he discusses marx uh he doesn't really say you know marx failed to consider but he does mention like the turner uh frontier kind of hypothesis and says uh william appleman williams deals with the variation of this question he argues that the basis for the long-term general or pluralist coalition of the forces of capitalism or plutocracy with the forces of democracy in american politics is the constant companionship of the of the expanding wilderness frontier williams thus stands the turner frontier on its head correcting it 
I add that another incognate effect of the frontier in American economic development was to preserve the entrepreneurial option long after the arrival of the vast monopoly structures which tend to consume entrepreneurs. In the states whose political economic histories Marx studied, for example, the frontier was never the factor that it was in America, except as America itself was Europe's Wild West. The rugged individualist self-made rich man, the autonomous man of power, the wildcatter, began to drop out of sight, to lose presence as individuals type and class with the rise of the current day computer-centered monopoly corporate formations. The tycoon entrepreneur is of course disappearing as a type in America too, at least as a political force in national life. The Hughes empire at last has been corporatized. Old man Hunt is dead. His sons are bringing Harvard Business School rational bureaucracy to the operation. But that only makes it all the more curious that political power continue to emanate from the type and the person, the image and the reality, the ghost, perhaps, of a creature like Hughes as late as the second victorious presidential campaign of Nixon. Why should the cowboy tycoon have persisted so long as a political force, competent to struggle against the biggest banking cartels for control of the levers of national power? As others have argued, the frontier was a reprieve for democracy. We may note here that it was also a reprieve for capitalism as well, whose internal conflicts were constantly being financed off an endless seeming input of vast stretches of natural riches, having no origin in capitalist production. All that was needed was for the settlers to accept the genocidal elimination of the native population, and a great deal became possible, a great deal. The purple mountains, the fruited plains, and generation after generation of American whites were able to accept that program. The Indian Wars won the West. The railroad and highways were laid. The country was resettled by a new race, a new nation. The energies of expansion consumed the continent in about two centuries, pushing on to Hawaii and Alaska. There is no way to calculate the impact of that constant territorial expansion on the development of American institutions. There is no way to imagine those institutions apart from the environment created by that expansion. It is a matter our national standard or standard national hagiography point, paints out of the picture, though we make much of the populist saga aspect of the pioneering, never quote, conquering of the West. How can we congratulate our national performance for its general democracy and constitutionalism without taking into account the background of that constant expansion. We do not teach our children that we are Democrats in order to expand forever and Republicans on condition of an unfrozen Western boundary with unclaimed wilderness. To the extent that the American miracle of pluralism exists at all, we still do not know how miraculous it would be in the absence of an expanding frontier, its constant companion till the time of the Chinese Revolution. And I mean, you know, yeah. I think, he, yeah, he's right that it casts like a very long um, shadow. He also says that it's like now that he when he says some nice things about China, basically that like the success and then successful defense from 1950 to 1975 of the Asian revolutionary nationalist campaigns against further Western dominance in Asia, China, Korea, Vietnam, means that all this has changed. What was once true about the space to the West of America is no longer true and will never be true again. There will never be a time again when the white adventurer may peer over his Western horizon at an Asia helplessly plunged in social disorganization. In terms of their social power to operate as a unified people and in the assimilation of technology, the Chinese people are, since 1950, a self-modernizing people, not colonials anymore. And instead of a Wild West, Americans now have a mature common boundary with other moderns like ourselves. Not savages, not redskins, not reds, only modern people like ourselves in a single modern world. This is new this for is us. This is very a interesting in light of 
like post 9 11. Yeah. Uh, it really is. Like, I, I, yeah. if only that were still true, they managed to turn the clock back on that, I guess. Mm-hmm. So they yeah. managed to like re yeah, revitalize it. I think that was it. thinking on his part. Uh, I think it because, was. I think it yeah. was. Uh, yeah. And also, this is written like probably right before Mao died. So uh, mm-hmm. he was referring to Maoist China. And their achievements uh, before, you know, uh, big boy Dang uh, came in and uh, did what he did. Um, (laughs) And also, yeah, the idea that, I mean, I guess in a way he is still correct about uh, all three of the countries, Vietnam, Korea, and China, that none of them have, like, I would even say China, it's one thing to say China has, like, adopted a path of, like, collaboration and revisionism and capitalism, whatever, but, like, I don't think the U.S. necessarily, like, beat China or, like, turned it into a vassal state or whatever or destroyed it. Mm-hmm. Like, China still exists as, like, an independent polity, if you will, um, and mm-hmm. America has been forced to, like, trade with them instead of colonizing them, basically. Like it's it's better than nothing, but uh, yeah. And then you have like Vietnam, who we also trade with, even though we failed to like you know destroy their revolution. And then Korea, we just got BTFO'd, and they took the pill low. They're never giving it back, and we just like have to suck it. Which is kind of interesting that Trump, <laughs> the cowboy president, like buddied up to Kim Jong Un. I'm not yeah. sure how that fits into the paradigm, but uh, th- th- who knows? It's not like you get a cowboy playbook if you get elected. No, I think that it could have been some cowboy entryism really... going on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, you know, there's some again, like I don't feel like these like, uh, you know, precisely map onto everyone. I think that, you know, Bush H.W. Uh, that is like is someone who kind of like confounds the classification like fully yeah. but i think he's that like a day walker uh, you know in, in a true dialectic you know there's always influence between the two sides they're not like sort of starkly uh, mutually exclusive but i think like just before the portion you read is something interesting uh, that's relevant like a longer sort of uh quote from quigley uh that's sort of relevant to what we were talking about earlier where he kind of you know he talks about in a footnote some of the civil war stuff but also like his uh sort of more granular uh paradigm of uh the yankee cowboy dynamic in uh the his own current context so he says uh quigley is the author of a huge book about the contemporary world tragedy hope you know to which i will return in (laughs) chapter two i begin my debt to quigley year by borrowing the following observation from his summary noting that since 1950 a revolutionary change has been occurring in american politics quigley says this transformation involves uh quote, a disintegration of the middle class and a corresponding increase in significance by the petty bourgeoisie at the same time that economic influence of the older Wall Street financial groups has been weakening and been challenged by new wealth springing up outside the eastern cities, notably in the southwest and far west. He Mm. continues, these new sources of wealth have been based very largely on government action and government spending, but have nonetheless adopted a petty bourgeois outlook rather than the semi-aristocratic outlook that pervades the Eastern establishment. This new wealth, based on petroleum, national, natural gas, ruthless exploitation of natural resources, uh, the aviation industry, military bases in the South and West, and finally on space with all its attendant activities. This is very interesting, you know, in light of what we see, like now, you know, you mentioned Elon Musk. Uh, totally. Has centered in Texas and Southern California. Its existence for the first time made it possible for the petty bourgeois outlook to make itself felt in the political nomination process instead of the un- in the run-rewarding effort to influence politics by voting for a Republican candidate nominated under the Eastern establishment influence. 
by the 1964 election, the major political issue in the country was a financial struggle behind the scenes between the old wealth, civilizing cultures and its foundations, and the new wealth, virile and uninformed, arising from the flowing profits of government-dependent corporations in the Southwest and the West. So I thought that yeah, was very interesting of, to point out the the massive yeah. like state subsidy via yeah. the defense industry of like these entire regions, really. Like Texas and Southern mm. California, that's very, you know, pension kind of a uh, territory there of like Orange County and Lockheed and Hughes and like NASA and all these that, you know, Huntsville, Alabama and Florida. And yeah, also like it does. I mean, I don't know. Like you think that that kind of um, that that shouts like Elon Musk to you uh well you know thinking about like the uh interest in space and how that's you know moved to he's kind of like the a, a huge person uh, involved in space now i mean it kind mm-hmm. of like moved solely to the private sector for a while but i think that he's like very much integrated with uh you know uh, public oh funding. yeah he's he's uh, like know, largely so. bankrolled i think off like pen- dod contracts to launch yeah. satellites mm-hmm. into space and things like that so that's kind of still his bread and butter like you can't really yeah separate these guys from it's like you know amazon running the cia's like cloud computing you know service and things like that yeah so They're the mention of like space you know especially yeah i think another that, frontier yeah he, i well, yeah exactly uh and he even makes that uh comparison but i think yeah he represents like the true like cowboyification or the the hypertrophized cowboyification of space uh you know and he really is like a true space cowboy in a yeah, way, was, like, <laughs> with this, like, you know, naive attitude, like, you know, towards the whole, like, uh, I saw something on Twitter of, like, all this, like, debris, like, scour- like scattered, or, like, all over, like, you know, someone's, you know, outside where they lived or something, like, uh, you know, it was, like, a, a road, but also, like, a habitat, you know, for animals, and there's just, mm-hmm. like, all this, like, you know, like, junk from, like, his busted-up rocket or whatever, just, like, you know, strewn everywhere, and, like, people in the com, you know, like the, the the original tweet was saying something like you know oh thanks for like you know blocking the road and like destroying all these animals like you know habitats and the people in the comments were like he has done more to like reach the human potential of space you know he's like he's turning us green and you know it's like and people are like well how does like the, how do the rockets help fight global warming and they're like well they don't but it's just important it's just important to go to space because of yeah, like dreams so and escape. imagination you know yeah exactly uh, uh they just all want to uh, go to Mars in a bucket and live. They want to go to Mars in a bucket and live on the red planet and worship Shaitan. But uh, anyway, uh, uh, anyway, he does say, uh, you know, in a footnote, he notes like, you know, that this is like a new configuration, but that there, you know, there always is a power struggle theory of some kind uh, from the beginning. And there's always been a split at the top. He mentions uh, the uses of anti-slavery, which is, uh, you know, I guess Mm. George M. Fredrickson reviewed it. Or he uh, he wrote a review entitled that uh, of David Brian Davis's book, The Problem of Slavery. And, you know, the summary of Davis's book uh, via Fredrickson, mm-hmm. via Oglesby is uh, the cost of nation of the United States was not merely a sectional compromise, but also a compact between two distinct elites, a northern capitalist class that increasingly recognized the advantages of a free labor system and a southern planter class already implicitly committed to the preservation and extension of slavery. 
Hence, the United States seemingly emerged from its revolutionary period without a national ruling class. It was, in fact, a federation of two regional ruling classes. So that's the mm. parallel that he makes, although like not necessarily drawing like a, a genealogical link between you know the cowboys and the slave elites. You know, it's uh, yeah, well, like it's still the same it, fragmentation it, of the ruling. Yeah, class. it's interesting in a, in a certain kind of way. It's like they the southern elites. I mean, they weren't entirely vanquished, but they were kind of for they were definitely taken down a notch and then forced to like uh kind of reorient to a new system and in a way the western in the early by the early 20th century really like the second most powerful faction which was kind of had overlap with the southern the older southern planter elites but was like not exactly the same uh was the western tycoons and it almost i mean definitely oglesby kind of focuses more on it's like the the southwestern and the northeastern are kind of uh and then you know in the middle of the country maybe it's a little more uh fluid or whatever but those are the two most powerful blocks and so mm-hmm. yeah it wasn't a direct line per se from i don't know defense contractor like real estate tycoons in you know southern california like coming mm-hmm. straight from the 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 postbellum south or whatever mm-hmm. a lot of times they were they were just like primitive accumulators or con men like john d rockefeller's dad or you know just like some a bunch of daniel Plainviews coming out there who you know got that that first mover's advantage right or the or the early adopter advantage because that's really where that's really if you want to mm-hmm. fast if you want to like hop in the fast lane and get a lot of power in this capitalist system very fast you find a new untapped market where you could like primitively accumulate before anybody else gets there. It's just like if you bought 10,000 Bitcoin in 2010, like you would be like a billionaire now, you know, it's like a, that kind of thing. But they're, they're always trying to like come up with whether, and I'm sure the same thing applies for space, it applied for the internet, like electronics, et cetera, et cetera. And certainly for like land, real estate in general. Uh, but yeah. Come on, everybody. We're going to sing Yankee the JFK assassination but before that uh, I think Oglesby lays out kind of three major events that preceded the events of the 1960s and 1970s with this uh, kind of uh, Yankee cowboy dialectical uh, well really first kind of like a almost like a popular front a bourgeois popular front if you will during world war ii but then like the seeds being laid for kind of competing factions so 
You lose out three things, one of which we already talked about, which was the long-term penetration of the American foreign policy bureaucracy by a secret group of Anglophiles operating worldwide as the round table. So that's, you know, CFR, probably Avril Harriman, Dulles Brothers, etc. But number two is the so-called Operation Underworld of the World War II years, a secret but evidently formal and binding compact linking the federal police apparatus and the crime syndicate of Meyer Lansky. And the third one is, and this is really kind of the, the most spicy and, and dark and fascinating one, but the secret submission of the U.S. World War II command to the astonishing demands of Nazi Germany's top spymaster, General Reinhard Galen, who leapt from Hitler's sinking general staff to become unrivaled chief of American, West German, and NATO intelligence systems in the Cold War years. And he goes into depth both on uh, Operation Underworld, which comes up in strange ways, like in both the milieu of people around the JFK assassination and the people around Watergate. And for anybody that doesn't know, I feel like a lot of people do, so we don't need to spend like too much time on the World War II thing. But basically, there was a lot of sabotage going on in the docks and the East Coast in the early years of World War II. And I guess uh, FDR wanted to put a stop to it, and they ended up turning to the mafia, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that time, Lucky Luciano was in prison, and his nationwide crime syndicate was being run by his his Jewish lieutenant, Meyer Lansky. So, you know, apparently the U.S. government approached Meyer Lansky and came up with an agreement, basically, whereby they would enforce, uh, they would protect the docks from Nazi or fascist Italian espionage and uh, sabotage and things of that nature. And in return, at the end of the war, they would release Lucky Luciano from prison and exile him back to Sicily. And that's basically exactly what happened. At the end of the war, they did uh, deport him, uh, Luciano, back to Sicily, but then he quickly, I think, circled back and landed in their new kind of uh, offshore capital, which was Havana, Cuba, because I guess as going back even before World War II, Lansky had had a sit-down with Batista, I think the first time he was in power, yeah, in 1934, uh, the same the year of repeal when prohibition ended, and I guess that yeah they they had met in 1934. Lansky had seen that the coming legalization of liquor might give an enormous business opportunity to those who had run it when it was illegal. So as repeal drew near, he started shopping for raw material sources for all the world, like a run of the mill corporate imperial businessman. He got to Havana in 1934 after, uh, shortly after Batista first won power. The two men found themselves in deep harmony. Lansky stayed three weeks and worked out with Batista the arrangements that would bring molasses from Cuban cane to syndicate-controlled distilleries and set up Havana as a major gaming capital in the Western Hemisphere. From these beginnings, the Lansky-Batista Association prospered greatly over the next decade. And I guess uh, in 1944, Roosevelt actually wanted Batista to step aside and he sent Meyer Lansky uh, to Cuba to like nego- like ask him to step down. And I, I think he went and lived in Palm Springs for a while. And then he came back to power, I think, in the early 50s when the U.S. decided they wanted him back. Um, yeah, uh, Lansky gave him a Palm Springs mansion uh, to live in, Batista, uh, during the rest of the 1940s. And um, and Lansky told Batista he could go back and take power. 
in the early 50s. So that's what he did. So that just goes to show you the deep level of mafia integration with the regime that Castro overthrew. Uh, The one other thing that had implications was that right at the close of the war, the forces of crime in France were integrated into U.S. efforts to establish anti-communist post-war governments, notably at Marseille, where the World War II CIA, the OSS, employed Corsican syndicate goon squads to break the French Communist Party's control of the docks. It was another twisted situation. The main serious wartime resistance to European fascism was that of European communists. The resistance was militarily and therefore politically significant. Beyond Communist Party activity, resistance to Nazi Germany had been fragmentary or weak-willed and ineffective the non-communist left, e.g. the groups around Jean-Paul Sartre and Albert Camus, hmm. you know, the, 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 yes, the pedo-socialists, uh, yes. yeah, had prestige but yeah. little combat or political organizational capability. The rest of the country collaborated. With no interference from outside, the natural result of this disposition of factors in post-war Europe might easily have been the immediate rise of the Communist Party to great power, if not dominance, in French affairs. The same thing was threatening to happen all across Europe. Given that American policy he was committed to the achievement of a non-communist post-war Western Europe. There was possibly no way for the pacification effort to have avoided collusion with crime. Besides, he, he italicizes this, besides the Corsican syndicate, there was no other group sufficiently organized and disciplined to challenge the French CP for control of the Marseille docks. A result is that Marseille became within a few years the heroin manufacturing capital of the Western world and the production base of the Lansky Luciano Traficante heroin traffic into the American ghetto so there you go that's kind of how that happened uh he says that like with operation underworld roosevelt made the mafiosi all but official masters of the u.s east coast docks and gave implicit protection to their activities everywhere with his instructions to Patton in 1943 uh he he told Patton to wave the red the black and yellow banner of the mafia underneath <laughs> the american flag when he invaded um and mm-hmm. ordered him to restore <laughs> wow. the mafia cool. to power in sicily mm-hmm. and when he sent lansky to batista in 1944 he paved the way for the spread of syndicate influence throughout the caribbean and central america when he directed the cia to use syndicate thugs at marseille and he means oss to use syndicate thugs at marseille in 1945 he licensed the heroin factories that would be feeding the american habit into a contagion virtually unchecked over the years of the cold war the other thing that he pops up which will come back during war Watergate. There's a very bizarre story with Richard, young Richard Nixon during the war, and it involves the black market economy around like bootleg tires in Miami, which I guess because there were rationing, there's rationing, the mafia got into this whole secondary market of selling used tires, which was illegal. And I guess Nixon is, uh, Nixon's crew is very weird because he worked for the office of I forget what it was called. It was like a very obscure um, war office. He had the Office of Price Administration. He worked in the Interpretations Unit uh, before joining the Navy in the first year of the war, and he was in the tire rationing branch. And investigator Jeff Gerth has discovered that three weeks after Nixon began this job, his close friend-to-be, George Smathers, came to federal court for the defendant in this case, United States v. Standard Oil of Kansas. Rockefeller. Uh, U.S. Customs had confiscated a load of American-made tires re-entering the country through Cuba in an, quote, attempt to circumvent national tire rationing, i.e. bootleg tires. Smathers wanted to speed up the case for his client and so wrote to the OPA for a ruling. His letter must have come to Nixon, who OPA records show, 
was responsible for all correspondence on tire rationing questions. It was therefore Nixon's business to answer Smathers, especially since this was the first knock on the door. It would be nice to know what Nixon said and how the matter was disposed of. Unfortunately, reports Girth, most OPA records were destroyed after the war. He hypothesizes that maybe that Nixon became friendly with a Cuban mafioso Bebe Rebozo around this time, even though allegedly the real story is that Nixon was introduced to Bebe Rebozo by Richard Danner, the courier and connector who left the FBI to become city manager of Miami Beach at a time when it was under the all but open control of the mob. Danner met Nixon at a party in 47, uh, thrown in Washington by another newly elected congressman, George Smathers, um, who was an intimate friend and business partner of Bebe Rebozo and a friend of Batista. Yeah, there was like a lot of like just connections of them getting like comped at casinos and getting money and even like the checkers scandal is wrapped up in this anyways like he lays this out basically that there was like full integration of the organized crime apparatus and the law enforcement apparatus so that's like one that will continuously pop up in both jfk and watergate now the second one or, or the third thing he lists is kind of the, the the most ominous and that is about the galen organization i think he does actually a really good job here of like summarizing galen and he also he summarizes uh, some other things that i don't think this was his intention but just uh i think people will recognize a kind of interesting line that he takes on some of the soviet collaborators in the red army that uh well i'll just read this and you can draw your own conclusion so oglesby writes recall two generals of world war ii first general andre vlasov a red army officer secretly working with an extensive anti-bolshevist spy ring oh i thought it was all just made up by stalin okay (laughs) he joined up his forces with the advancing germans during the invasion of ukraine where russian forces antagonistic to stalin and anxious to overthrow the bolsheviks had collected vlasov commanded the so-called army of liberation a full division of more or less well-equipped troops fighting under the flag of great white russian reaction for the restoration for the restoration of the Tsar. And second, General Reinhard Galen, the famous super spy of the same war, master of Hitler's powerful Soviet intelligence apparatus. The practical basis of the great success of Galen's Soviet intelligence system was his relationship to Vlasov. Through Vlasov, Galen had access to the Russian anti-Bolshevist underground network that had long since penetrated, if not captured, key departments of the Soviet regime. Is everyone getting scared yet? At a moment in their invasion, when the Nazis still thought themselves on the brink of triumph, Galen proposed to Hitler that Vlasov be made the head of the forthcoming provisional government. No. Uh, No support for that provisional government. No support, uh, to quote Mm -hmm. Lenin. Uh, Hitler declined, presumably out of respect for Vlasov's power, but the relationship between Galen and Vlasov and their spy systems remained intact, even after the defeat of the Wehrmacht at the Battle of Stalingrad in the winter of 42 and 43. By Christmas 1944, Galen had reached the belief that Germany's cause was hopeless. Against the certainty of national defeat, he decided that his only personal choice lay between surrender to the Russians and surrender to the Americans. In 1945, with the Russian army closing on Berlin, Galen gathered together with his top aides in a hotel room in Bad Elster, Saxony, 
to carry out the decisive and most dangerous step of their decision. They stripped their archives of the intelligence information that would be most useful to them in subsequent negotiations. Burning tons of other documents, they stored their basic intelligence cache in 52 crates and with elaborate security measures moved these crates south into the Bavarian Redoubt and buried them in a high mountain field called Misery Meadow, overlooked by a chalet which Galen, which Galen's foresight had long before provisioned. Safe there with his top 40 aides and his buried spy treasures, Galen settled down to wait the Americans. By May Day 1945, the Red Army was in Berlin and Hitler was dead. Well, maybe dead. Three weeks later, columns of the 101st Airborne moved up the valley below Galen's mountain fortress. Galen's aides descended from the upper slopes to present themselves for capture and arrange an appointment for the capture of their commander, the highest-ranking German officer and Hitler's only staff general yet to make his way to safety in American hands. No ceremonies were slighted. One interview followed another. Captured in May... Galen arrived in Washington three months later, August 22, 1945, in the uniform of a general of the United States Army, flown there in the command transport of General Walter Bettel Smith, who I believe was the first CIA director um, shortly thereafter, in a series of secret meetings with the American staff, beginning with Alan Dulles and Wild Bill Donovan of the OSS, he laid out in detail the proposal, the surrender conditions, essentially, which he was offering the Americans. Post-war Europe, he pointed out, as everyone knew, was certain to become the arena of a confrontation between the United States and the Soviet Union, ultimately even greater than the confrontation just ending between the victorious allies and the vanquished Axis. The Soviets, he said, were well prepared for this new confrontation from an intelligence standpoint, as who better than he could say, and the Americans were not. The, the Russians had a crack spy network in West Europe and America, but the Americans did not have a spy network of any kind or quality in East Europe and Russia. Did that not put Americans at an important disadvantage in the forthcoming struggles? Then where and how could the Americans procure the needed capability? Recruiting and training a corps of Russian and Central European intelligence agents and building a network of reliable sources and experts nearly from scratch would take years, generations. The Americans agreed with Galen that they did not have much time. Very well. Galen had a practical solution to this very problem. His own intelligence apparatus was still intact within the collapsing Hitler government. It was as capable as ever of delivering large masses of high-quality intelligence data on all aspects of Soviet life. Hitler had never taken advantage of this capability, Galen explained. Hitler had ignored Galen's organization and had gone on to ruin. Still, it was there. It, it might have been put to better use. It still could be, should the Americans accept his offer. Galen's offer was for the Americans to pick up his organization bodily and bolt it into the empty space in their own intelligence system as though it were one of the spoils of the war. Galen could plausibly guarantee his network's unmatched and unbending loyalty to the cause of anti-Bolshevism, and the 52 crates he had buried in Misery Meadow were tangible proofs of his power and a foretaste of secret knowledge to come. All the Americans had to do was meet Galen's four conditions. For, these are pretty wild. First, Galen okay. was to have complete autonomy within his organization and total control over its activities. The Americans would tell him what they wanted, and they would get it, satisfaction guaranteed, but they would have to know nothing about the process by which Galen got it, to, uh, got it to give them. That knowledge was Galen's own. He even reserved the right to approve U.S. liaison officers assigned to him. Second, the Americans would agree to use Galen only against the USSR and the East European satellites. Third, when a new German government was set up, the Americans would constitutionally install the Galen organization in it as its official central intelligence agency and cancel automatically all outstanding Galen commitments to the United States. Fourth, <laughs> the Americans would never require Galen to do anything he considered against German national interest. 
In the long and short, our guys fell for it. Even as the United States was publicly proclaiming a policy of unconditional German surrender, Galen's incredible conditions were met, and his organization was being established at the very core and seat of the American system of foreign intelligence under the responsibility of Alan Dulles's secret intelligence branch of the OSS. By the time of the transformation of the OSS into the CIA in 1948, Galen had grown tight with Dulles, and his organization had become, in effect, the CIA's Department of Russian and Eastern European Affairs. Soon after the formation of NATO, it became the official NATO intelligence organization. Cool. As per Galen's third condition, his organization was installed as the core, and he is the director of the West German CIA, the Bundesnacht in the Dienst, uh, the BND. Uh, sorry for butchering that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, basically, uh, he said, we, we need to go no further into the exploits of this last long and probable phase of Galen's career, save to note that it spans the Cold War, that it was current as of Watergate, and that Galen had to be pried out of a spy's, quote, retirement in 1974 to testify in the sensational West German spy scandal that brought down Willie Brandt. Look what powers the victors conceded the vanquished. Exclusive purveyor of intelligence on the Soviet Union and East Europe to the United States, West Germany, and NATO, Galen and the spirit kept alive in him and his staff had more power over official American perceptions in the post-war world than even a German victory could have given them. The Galen Vlasov intelligence system had become a main source and fountain of official American consciousness. And last thing, going back to Vlasov, behind the span, behold the span of this concatenation. First, in the time of Trotsky, relevant, uh, there is General Vlasov and his anti-Bolshevist army inspiring. The Vlasov apparatus is then, at a certain later point, assimilated to the Galen apparatus. Then, just as the white Russian spies jumped to the Nazis when their own army went down, so now the German Nazi and Russian Tsarist spies together jumped to the American army as the Wehrmacht was falling. Vlasov first became a Department of Galen, then Galen became a department of Alan Dulles. This is how it came to pass that a czarist spy ring inside a Nazi spy ring took up the inner seats in the American foreign policy intelligence apparatus at the precise moment that this apparatus was starting to come forward as a major player in the great policy wars of Washington and the world. This is how it came to pass that everything official Washington would know about the Soviet Union and East Europe on most believable report, everything about the enemy our policy make policymakers would most confidently believe would come by way of czarists and Nazis installed at the center of our national intelligence system. That was a buzzard that would come home to roost again and again. So there you go. I mean, so, you know, uh, first of all, I don't know, according to Oglesby, who is no, no Stalinist, uh, the Vlasov spy ring mm-hmm. yeah. was extremely vast. It does make me wonder though, how'd they miss Vlasov? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You mean like how did the, the Soviets. Soviets miss Vlasov? Yeah, I don't know. Because he was he was uh, literally like the, p- the kind of person they were searching for. Yeah, like he was literally collaborating with the Nazis and had a plan to like kill Stalin and like restore the Tsarist government and and he did have I've read about the, his army before. What was it called? Army of Liberation, I think. Mm-hmm. And how I think some of them, yeah, Andrei Vlasov. Just to, to check on him. Yeah, they were they were mostly ethnic Russians. I wasn't sure if maybe they were mostly Ukrainians, but I think they did have a lot of um, Ukrainians. I guess he got captured and then agreed to collaborate with them. See, it's interesting when you read Wikipedia, it makes it sound like he's a guy who just sort of got captured and then changed his mind. Mm-hmm. But then the way it's uh, kind of said here is like, no, he was spying for them and he was you know sympathetic basically to 
the overthrow of the Bolsheviks and basically wanted to uh yeah uh Vlasov was hanged in Moscow in 46 so yeah um I mean they they got him folks uh they eventually got him but it is pretty yeah it is it's it's interesting how it it actually gives a little bit more credence to some of the more spectacular claims maybe not so much of like the old Bolshevik party members but definitely oh why am I blanking on the um the general Tukhachevsky Um, Tukhachevsky yeah Marshal Tukhachevsky um in 1937 which was actually a secret trial not a public trial so that all that is a pretty good summary of like the Galen org and how they integrated themselves extremely deep i mean really it is kind of i like that that sort of um characterization of it of just there's like an empty space that they they took this spy network and just plugged it into this gap that they had because it makes sense like they they really didn't have any intelligence assets really inside of eastern europe you know at the end of world war ii they were kind of shit out of luck so if they wanted to launch this kind of global cold war and of course you know as we see time and again really not that opposed to working with some some pretty bad nazis overall yeah Um, oglesby's um, like analysis of that is like kind of like a little bit spotty because he's like uh you know they were tricked basically like we were our guys were gullible and like they fell for it you know like uh they yeah, quite, maybe like, not they quite cynical into enough. a cold war you know, yeah exactly like they yeah yeah according they to conned. him like they weren't even trying to set up a cold war it was just like they hmm. were like yeah, taken by surprise yeah. I mean, by like I mean, the he, alliance deteriorating so yeah you know, i think but, uh, you know even though he elsewhere he attacks the kind of idea of like bumbling cia narratives around things like the bay of pigs and i think a very deft way i think maybe he i don't think he quite goes full bumbling bumbling deep state uh but maybe i mean ultimately he condemns uh the the american ruling class basically but i i know what you mean like this is how it came to pass that azara spy ring inside a nazi spy ring took up the inner seats i think he's right about everything he says there and how everything we would come to know about the enemy would come through these like nazis and you know these psychos uh but i think that for people like alan dulles that i don't know how much they really cared and in fact they might have recognized like the utility of that that mm-hmm. you know basically because they talk about later how certain things were or like yeah it, like uh, kennedy like they the, the the way they would twist intelligence and stuff um to like give a certain impression to him like they they yeah, were i guess like it's uh yeah, I mean, it's an interesting take in a way because it's kind of like, you know, what does it mean to, like, trust someone? Like, you know, they know what their worldview was. So, like, is trusting them really gullible or do they just agree with them? You know, yeah, exactly. like, uh, are well, they just like he, also he, wrong? You know, like, and do they, like, just trust the information they're receiving from them, not because they're naive about who they are, but because, like, they have a, a similar worldview, <laughs> Like, yes, uh, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, I think he he does point out the most critical thing is that you you knew you could rely on these guys, if nothing else. Like Nazis are duplicitous, but the one thing you could rely on them is their fanatical hatred of Bolshevism. Like you know they're not going to like turn double agent on you and start working for the KGB. Probably. I mean, you know, perhaps it happened once or twice, but I would say that people like Galen, like they were diehards. So you had that kind of uh, you knew you had that like rock hard ideological, uh, you know, compatibility. 
that well you know the enemy the enemy is is my butt is my asset uh that's totally cool and i think by the end of the war it's like you know we did crush them so i think it was in some ways yeah i I think it was maybe more of like a one ring thing like oh you could just like you know hang all these guys for their war crimes or you could like keep them and maybe they could be really useful and like what's the worst that could happen i think you know i think with people like alan dulles who definitely strikes me as a bit of like a, a a psychopath like or a sociopath mm-hmm. um maybe he wouldn't even think that much about it but i'm sure other people could probably you know psychologically bargain with themselves and say like well you know they're only dangerous to our new enemy they're not really dangerous to us anymore like we we beat yeah. them because we're number one and and so why not use these guys what's the big deal you know um and yeah, you know even and the I nazis practice this kind of thing of like oh the holocaust like oh i didn't know anything about that like i just exactly. i was just rockets. yeah like I that almost, kind of thing people so was, might not have yeah really understood at that time they might not have like had you know it's still like a transitional period like there definitely was like an engine of wartime propaganda like churning you know but at the same time like the specter of like the nazi as like this extremely bad thing that you can't possibly deal with like you know a lot of people in the united states like we're down with the nazis like at first mm-hmm. you know like uh so yeah. like yeah. after the fact like eh, like yeah 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 uh, oglesby also talks about how like the weird trajectory of john f kennedy and how his father who is the u.s ambassador to the uk in the late 1930s like that kind of had a that was an interesting influence on well for joseph kennedy who kind of came up as like this irish bootlegger from boston who was not really considered old society by the boston brahmin types he Mm -hmm. really fell in hard with like the british aristocracy when he was ambassador and also was like a huge isolationist and was like very against the united states getting involved in combating nazi germany and oglesby points out well you know a lot of the british aristocracy at that time was like I mean, maybe he's even being, like, too optimistic about, like, the common British people, but basically saying, like, they were out of step with, like, their own population of, like, the common people at that time, and a lot of them, like, really admired Hitler, so they were so spellbound by, like, the the sort of the myth of his, like, military prowess that they were, he said they were spiritually incapable of opposing Nazism, and Joseph Kennedy kind of, like, adopted that line like fully and uh mm-hmm. i guess even like jfk's college dissertation was about i, I think it, it might have been about like being an isolationist or something uh but i guess it was just like a total regurgitation of his father's political beliefs uh when he was right. you know, a young man but. yeah he found that buckle in a pawn shop can't two step across this floor them boots ain't ever seen the mud can't be what you're looking for Got a half-assed smile and fake southern drawl. He's dressed up like the Marlboro Man. He's never backed in a box, dropped in a shoot, and he's never rode for a brand. Cause he ain't a cowboy, he ain't a plowboy. He's just a city boy in disguise. And he's never drove a tractor. Maybe that's the kind of man you're after. And he can't saddle up no horse, so he ain't ever gonna ride away. I'm a saddle sore puncher and a buckle I want Sure to break your heart one day He's never pulled no plow from dust till dawn Or thrown hay till the sun came up He's never hooked no bass on a Texas rig Hell, the man don't drive a truck And he'll be out across town tomorrow night Skinny jeans cause he has no 
shame He's never tipped his hat for guts or glory Or riding through the pain Cause he ain't a cowboy, he ain't a plowboy He's just a city boy in the sky And he's never drove a tractor Maybe that's the kind of man you're after He can't saddle up no horse So he ain't ever gonna ride away And I'm a saddle soul puncher in a buckle I want but you know, okay, so well, okay, we we can we can move on to like Kennedy now that the all those stages are are set just a little bit. We don't need to talk. I think we all know uh, Magic Bullet is bullshit. Warren Commission bullshit. I think that <laughs> right. one thing that we talked about earlier that this book does cover is a little bit of a pushback against uh, our our boy Saint Gnome who insisted that jfk was just like a bloodthirsty militarist like there's absolutely no difference between him and johnson and thus this assassination just doesn't matter um, right I think, yeah right mm-hmm. there's like, some good quote there's some good quotes there uh you know i definitely don't agree with trump's idea it doesn't matter i think it's hard to say like with a president like what would have happened like if he had lived so i feel like there's a little bit of like you know uh projection or extrapolation with like kennedy but you know a, a lot of it is persuasive like we should definitely go go into it you know uh and i definitely don't think there's no difference, uh, you know, in yeah. in this book, and in this formulation, there's like a huge difference because Johnson is like a cowboy, a cowboy. Yes, person, I was just going to say, you know, yeah, that's an important true. thing you know, like, that people uh, certainly Chomsky doesn't uh, pick up on at all, that even though these guys were in the same party, they were both demon rats. Uh, they were they embodied you know, the rats, Democratic yeah. Party was like a very bizarre coalition of different voting blocks and interests in like the mid 20th century during the cold war like it truly was it was like it was a very broad but strange coalition of like increasingly like african-american voters uh white racist segregationists like white ethnic union people in the north and the midwest and like jewish liberals in new york you know what i mean like just like mm-hmm. a really but like the the presence of the dixiecrats which is what johnson and, and johnson i mean he's kind of a dixiecrat but actually not not actually technically because he was supportive at least, you know, publicly and I guess in his legislation of civil rights. But what he really was was like a I'd say in economic terms, he was a cowboy because he was super plugged in with all of the military industrial defense contractor stuff that was happening in Texas. And I believe when he was in the Senate, I think he was on he may have been chairman at one point of the armed services committee. He was a chairman of a defense committee, whichever one it was that controlled that oversaw the black budget in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. he was like intimate and, and he was incredibly corrupt on top of that. And of course this was like a clumsy kind of a attempt at building a kind of, uh, you know, unity ticket. Uh, I think the Kennedys had to be kind of, bullied a little bit into accepting johnson i forget where i read it but i I, or if it was maybe it was an evidence of revision but that that somebody came to the kennedy brothers bobby and jack at the convention when they were still trying to decide who they wanted to pick for their vp and they were leaning towards somebody else and they both like hated johnson they just thought he was an Mm -hmm. abusive asshole and didn't like trust him or anything like that and I, i feel somebody went to them and like kind of threatened to blackmail JFK with like evidence of him committing adultery. 
and they just had to like kind of suck it up and like pick Johnson, uh, which is I. I'd have to go check that later. Uh, if anybody wants to fact check me, they can do that. But I'm pretty certain that something like that went down, that their arm was twisted, that kind of like with Reagan and like Bush, like getting Bush to be his VP. It was kind of like not not a natural match or in terms of their Obama disposition. Obama and Biden. Uh, yeah, because yeah, If exactly. you think back at the time, you know, people, everyone was saying it was going to be Hillary. And I guess maybe she was given the choice is what I had always heard. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, interesting she wasn't gonna play second fiddle yeah yeah Mm, exactly yeah or well the Um, vice president doesn't do anything uh you know that's true she knows Uh, that yeah and also i think there was that uh, there was a very like like you know savvy tactical like we we want to put like an old white guy like an old irish catholic like scranton joe you you know know, he's like a john mccain equivalent yeah or like uh you know optically speaking uh exactly demographically uh, but i think yeah like uh, oglesby quotes a lot of people i guess these aren't like the serious aides that uh you know chomsky uh I, I, like schlesinger and people like that that like changed their biographies in the late 60s to sound more anti-vietnam but it was all a lie the end uh don't don't look into it uh he goes into actually he goes into like the very obama-esque doctrine of like special war that kennedy was uh, yes. kennedy and like his atlanticist uh, kind of brethren were interested very in. like we'll use a scalpel or whatever yeah. you know uh yeah exactly yeah. Uh, and also like it, he talks about kind of like the interesting hedging that liberals did uh talking about like they're they're kind of hemming and hawing about the bay of pigs and how they're not mm-hmm. really like totally against it on principle but they're kind of they're skeptical that it will be like a net positive uh for right basically uh yeah and i guess you know some of some of these liberals also tried to like influence the bay of pigs operation there's a really funny uh anecdote from tad schultz that's relayed when um when howard e howard hunt was summoned to the washington ca office from guatemala um, to like for a Bay of Pigs meeting and told that Manuel Ray, a liberal anti-Castroite, was going to be placed on the Cuban Revolutionary Council, um, the exile group's you know leadership committee, and he objected strongly to being instructed to put land reform in the new Cuban constitution he was drafting. So like E. Howard Hunt's writing yeah. the new Cuban constitution, but then they're like, hey, what if we put some like land reform? Uh, and he, he, uh, Schultz said with a touch of desperation, Hunt insisted that Ray was proposing Castroism without fidel ray was a quote a revisionist and an opportunist but his objections were met with stunning silence from the senior cia officers assembled in bissell's office they had their instructions from the white house hunt finally blurted out that he would rather withdraw from the operation than compromise on the issue to his astonishment no attempt was made to dissuade him from resigning this marked the end of hunt's direct involvement with the bay of pigs invasion so i guess that was like right after kennedy got into office like maybe just like weeks before or a week or two before bay of pigs and he just balked at so yeah you see uh the very obvious thing going on there but Mm -hmm. um but so yeah there was a kind of weird liberal thing where um like the the atlanticists um basically they kind of felt that yeah secretary of state dean rusk um was uh uh, or sorry, Undersecretary of State Bowles, uh, a blood Yankee liberal, stumbled onto the invasion plans as they were hatching, um, and 
ran to Secretary of State Rusk to protest. His argument was that, quote, the chances of success are not greater than one out of three. This makes it a highly risky operation. If it fails, Castro's prestige and strength will be greatly enhanced. And Oglesby says in some ways this is what happened, yet the argument seems cynical. Halberstam and Bowles are not actually anti-Castro. Neither one actually wants to see Castro's prestige destroyed. Their argument about counterproductivity seems an easy way to get a desired result, hands off Cuba in effect, without having to be explicit in the support of the Cuban people's right to revolution, and without having to attack the assumption that the United States has the right to invade country X if only practical standards can be satisfied. So he said that basically, you know, in their mind, a logical Bay of Pigs invasion existed. In other words, it existed in the minds of its advocates. In this logical Bay of Pigs invasion, the president of the United States was to have been a friend, not an enemy. Nixon would have made everything different. With Nixon in command, the bombers would have flown. The assassins would have struck. The fleet would have steamed again into Havana uh, if necessary. Uh, but, you know, he talks about how the special war period under Kennedy was the link between the commando-style espionage and political action taken under Eisenhower and the full dress air, ground, and sea war waged under Johnson, but special war was supposed to lead away from strategic war, not toward it, much as the commando politics of the late Eisenhower period was supposed to avert the necessity of engagement in the higher strategic scale of nuclear big power confrontation. Indeed, each phase of escalation has begun with a definition of aims and limits that looks every bit like a built-in guarantee against the frantic rescue missions that inflame the original problem, but the limit is always defined in terms of a strong initial expectation of positive success. The spy will achieve the objective. The commandos will achieve the objective. The special forces will achieve the objective. The infantry will achieve the objective. The air forces will achieve the objective. But at last, the objective is lost altogether and what becomes the supervening need to rescue the very rescue capability itself. Uh, and he says, what was the theory of Kennedy's special forces phase? Its chief theoretician, Walt Whitman Rostow, defined communism. This is interesting from like our Paul Robeson episode. Uh, Rostow mm -hmm. defined communism as, quote, a disease of transition, a social breakdown to which a society is peculiarly susceptible as it experiences the process of modernization. Once across the line, Rostow philosophized, a society be again becomes stable, as though industrial life is stable in its natural state, as though there is or has been stability in American or European life. But just at the crossing, there's the temptation to go red, to break faith with the universals and natural <laughs> rights and free enterprise of the monopolies and turn the problem of development over to international communism. That is where the special forces come in. They're there to hold the future for U.S. world capitalism across the line of third world social transition, protected thus from its own transient delirium. Country X can lock into the world system of American technical, i.e. military development assistance and corporate activity defined as the free world by those who most prosper in its games. That was the basis of the Alliance for Progress, the Peace Corps, the Special Forces, and the Special War Expedition to Vietnam. Kennedy carried the Rostowian assumptions to their combined conclusion, with an Alliance for Progress reform program depicted as working away at the larger social economic base of the problem, he positions a special forces capability to nip the bud of transitional diseases in the social margin. Nipped, these diseases do not grow into revolutions. Revolutions do not seize the small states one by one and carry them off into the camp of the adversary, and the United States continues to dominate a generally happy and prosperous world sphere, meanwhile easing toward detente in Europe, which really counts 
Netherlands. Country X will have been protected from transitional diseases by the American exertions and can float up into the modern world system on a bubble of American aid, mainly in the form of military assistance designed, above all, to secure the local ruling group and thus keep that kind of peace, ultimately to conglomerate with all the other Country X's in the happy molecule whose master atom is the multinational corporation. And Oglesby argues... Finally, that was the system of special forces, Alianza, world-making, for which Kennedy died. The vision of the Roundtable, the CFR, the liberals in the Rockefeller, Morgan, Mellon, Carnegie group. What cost Kennedy his life was his attempt to impose the limits of Camelot Atlanticism on a frontier-minded defense and security elite. His sense of the Cuban and Vietnamese situation seems to have been much the same. In each case, from a practical political standpoint, his immediate adversary was not Cuban or Vietnamese communism, so much as it was the American pro-war power elite to which he was so beholden and exposed. Recall that Kennedy could assume the loyalty of none of the clandestine or armed services, not the FBI, certainly not the CIA, a thousand times not the Joint Chiefs of Staff. This is why it is so important to see the Kennedy administration's record not in terms of its outward rationality, for it has none, and not as the expression of Kennedy's will alone, for his will did not prevail, but in terms of the impassioned political infighting that in reality constituted its actual life. If it is the relations of power in America that speak in Kennedy's apparent formula, if the Cuban exiles can make the invasion alone, let it be done, but only if. Or again, if the Vietnamese threat can be contained with a special forces level containment commitment and without disrupting North Atlantic relations, let it be done, but only if. Yeah, so then, you know, he he goes on to list evidence that Kennedy intended to pull back from Vietnam, particularly after his uh, re-election. And, I mean, there's a lot of quotes here that, I guess, Chomsky... Uh, didn't consider serious so you know they're whatever but um yeah there are a couple you know like there are a couple uh, good ones people uh, who had mentioned that uh he had had like a big change of mind about vietnam yeah there was one guy in particular who i guess had been speaking against the war extensively uh and kennedy i guess took him aside and was like uh you know i think you're right about vietnam it was just like very very shortly before his death uh mm-hmm. You yeah, know, it was like uh, maybe a week or two. Um, uh, yeah, he said, I like, I like keep, <laughs> like, I agree with your attacks on me or something like that. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right in your attacks on me or something. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I forget uh, what the, yeah, I, yeah, you're, you're the guy Wayne. Was, I, but... Yeah, who was it? It was uh, Wayne Morris. Yeah, Kennedy told him, Wayne, I want you to know you're absolutely right in your criticism of my Vietnam policy. Keep this in mind. I'm in the midst of an intensive study which substantiates your position of Vietnam. And that apparently was like the what be, what became known as the Pentagon Papers later, the McNamara study. And uh, mm-hmm. and so I guess uh, like he was looking at that at the time. He also told, let's see, I think it was maybe yeah, one of his uh, aides. Right, yeah, he had a major uh, decision to reject the recommendation made to him by mm-hmm. virtually everyone that he sent combat units to Vietnam. Kennedy yep. realized that most of the people in the country, whatever their politics would have said, if it takes combat troops or if it takes heavy bombing or nuclear weapons, it's obviously not worth it to us. We won't succeed. That's what Ellsberg said, summarizing, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the McNamara study. Um, and uh, to Oglesby's yeah. credit, he points out later that uh, Ellsberg is sus and he worked for Ed Lansdale in Southeast Asia. And maybe it was like some kind of weird Atlanticist limited hangout in the early 70s to like fuck yeah. with Nixon. But yeah, very, very Ed Snowden 
kind of uh, vibes going on with Ellsberg. Ellsberg's really the original, uh, like, friendly spook that, you know, comes out and is, yeah, like, heavy yeah, right. air quotes, uh, like, persecuted, but gets to go on, like, Democracy Now! and, like, get a bunch right, of book deals you know, and, like, be a celebrity. Uh, I think, you know, Oglesby is, like, pretty careful to, like, reiterate at least that he doesn't want to take sides in yeah. the Yankee cowboy war, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. And he even frames the book in this way of, like, you know, going into Watergate as well and showing, uh, you know, trying to, uh, frame this as, uh, two sides, uh, mm-hmm. opposed to each other, you know, and not really like one victimized or, you know, one that he supports or, or roots for. So, you know, uh, uh, yeah, he, he uh, hates all these fools and I think it's good. About, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Unlike yeah, LaRouche, who I feel, I feel like, I don't, I don't know if LaRouche like sided with the Cowboys per se, but he, uh, I don't know. A lot of people end up like they get caught in the sinister Well, LaRouche now, and... if we're saying Trump is a cowboy, LaRouche is all about Trump. Although, you know, it's been a while. Like, what, I do wonder what LaRouche is up to, like, right now. Like, what's he talking about currently? Like, what? Well, uh... he's, he's dead, so. Well, you know, like the LaRouche organization. The LaRouche I guess, yeah, I know. We um, talked about this doing during LaRouche. Like what is Helga guess, Zepp uh, up to? You know, yeah, Helga Zepp. I don't know what they're... I, I feel like that, you know, like uh, the Joe Biden's infrastructure really plan was just announced. It, it's probably going to suck, but it feels, LaRouche, it feels like yeah. there's some larouche stirrings in the uh, Biden administration, for better or worse. Uh, LaRouche Maybe packs, not enough trains, uh, four but, top articles are, uh, thank you, J.S. Bach. Uh, why is that Mr. <laughs> Biden? America is a republic, not a democracy. Um, okay. And uh, the American system realignment of the United States. And uh, the picture of that last headline is a picture of Lincoln, LaRouche, and Trump, like in a triptych. <laughs> uh, like a Marx then, Lenin. Uh, yeah. Yes, uh, wow, that's um, great. Uh, okay, so they're, they're off on their cloud. Ooh, here's another quote, though, that Kennedy said to his aide, Kenneth O'Donnell, in 1963. This one, I, I would like to see the context of this because it's so boldly refutes. Chomsky. Kennedy apparently mm-hmm. said, in 1965, I'll become one of the most unpopular presidents in history. I'll be damned everywhere as a communist appeaser, but now I don't care. If I tried to pull out completely now from Vietnam, we would have another Joe McCarthy Red Scare on our hands, but I can do it after I'm reelected, so we'd better make damn sure I'm reelected. Mm, I remember no. seeing that. According to whom did he say, uh, did he say that? Kenneth uh, O'Donnell. Mm-hmm. Ken- it is uh, footnoted. I haven't checked and the where footnote. Did, yeah, but. We should check the footnote because that's that's quite a statement. I it's wonder, a bold um, one. to his aide, Kenneth O'Donnell, he remarked this. All right, uh, this is uh, yeah. We're gonna we're gonna. What? Uh, uh, let's see. What chapter was that in? Chapter four. It was. It's note number twenty-four. Yeah. Uh, in chapter four. In chapter okay, four. Let's yeah. See. Um, uh, let's see. I'm sure it's not going to be a satisfying note, but I'm I'm looking. Yeah. It looks four. like it says hearings, volume 25, page 224, a 244, commission exhibit 1268. I wonder if that was the House Select Committee the on Assassinations. Hearings, I guess. Yeah. Oh, Maybe I guess yeah, is that the, the same hearings. as? It was the Warren hearings. Interesting. Um. Um. Yeah, because he cites it just above. So. Interesting. Wow. So stuff like that was said at the during the Warren Commission. Uh, there was mm, plenty that yeah. wasn't said during the Warren Commission. Uh, you know, There's but, certainly enough evidence, you know, for us to speculate that it might have mattered somewhat. 
uh, you know, for us to put the the point to Chomsky, uh, you know, when he comes on the podcast to beg for execution <laughs> and to yeah, take yeah. Shahada, he can uh, he can he, uh, maybe yeah, attempt to clear the record raise, in his name. Yeah, some of these yeah possibilities. Also, uh, not just the the whole Vietnam thing, but you know, even if even if you wanted to be generous and give Chomsky that. Then Oglesby goes through <laughs> and lists like not just Vietnam stuff, but all the other things he was kind of doing in the economic sphere that were pissing off various people, like uh, saying that he was going to cancel right, yeah. the oil depletion mm-hmm. allowance. Right. Uh, yes, that was a think, big thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, what yeah. was he doing? Raising? T- was he putting price controls on steel? as well uh it was a bunch of things that were like uh attacks on uh them like uh yeah his assault on the sanctity of the defense budget yeah he had the audacity Mm -hmm. to slightly reduce the defense budget from 51.6 billion to 50.8 right you know defense contractors that's like cowboy Mm -hmm. territory basically and big cowboy territory uh, and you know mit territory Uh, um but mm -hmm. uh yeah and Right. Yeah. yeah. There's also uh, the, the yeah the Chomsky uh, faction as well. Uh, yeah, he was also going although, after yeah. Jimmy Hoffa. Robert Kennedy was going after Jimmy Hoffa and the Teamsters and getting a little dangerously cl- threatening to expose and destroy a major and basic sphere of syndicate activity, the Teamster Pension Fund complex. Um, he also announced in April 1963 that all U.S. raids on Cuba would stop. Uh, there's an interesting anecdote here from Detective Sergeant C.H. Sapp of the Miami Police Intelligence Unit who said about anti-Castro Cubans in Miami uh, for the last three days, the intelligence unit has been receiving information concerning the feelings and proposed actions of the Cuban refugee colony in Miami. Oh, yeah, Since I President remember, Kennedy yeah. made the news release that the United States government would stop all raiding parties going against Castro's government, the Cuban people feel that the U.S. government has turned against them. All violence hitherto directed towards Castro's Cuba will now be directed towards various governmental agencies in the U.S. Wow, they're just such sovereign citizens. It's so cool. Mm, um, also, awesome. Kennedy yeah. also ordered, in September 1963, he ordered the FBI to raid secret cia guerrilla training camps and staging bases in florida and louisiana uh probably the one graham parsons uh visited with like his stepdad and dave ferry our favorite wandering bishop uh linked by jim garrison to clay shaw and the cia was involved in the operation of the louisiana camps the camps were situated on land owned by a gambling associate of jack ruby's bill mcclaney the mcclaney brothers cogs and the lansky syndicate were among the big losers when the cuban revolution ejected the syndicate and its casinos from the island um and yeah uh that's like it it really does it goes on and on and on there's like so much uh pointing that i don't and again not to like valorize kennedy as like oh he was like the best president ever and like he was gonna be so great and just do everything good and they killed him and you know what i mean because like kennedy was uh i think far from perfect and he was still as Ogilvy says, still an imperialist at the end of the day, but mm-hmm. there was a little bit of a different framing that I think was dominant in sort of the Northeastern Atlanticist establishment. Mainly, a lot of them, and we brought this up in our victory episode, like just how many of the prominent kind of a Sovietologists and leading intellectual lights and economists and things like that thought it was absolutely ridiculous that the Soviet Union would ever collapse and that one mm-hmm. it's kind of an interest it's kind of like what I read about the Bay of Pigs thing it's like like we should help uh revolutionaries like storm the island in, in, in the Bay of Pigs and you know storm Cuba mm-hmm. 
and help you know help them uh, but only if like we can do it with that limited commitment like if we have to do more yeah. than that it's not worth it it's kind of like that it's like the they perceived the cost it seemed they perceived the cost of like directly confronting the soviet union or actively trying to like undermine it and cause its collapse as just like way too much of a way too high of a cost to even consider trying so you're just gonna have to we're gonna have to live with this for a while and maybe we can kind of still but but you know they weren't giving up their dream of like global integrated global capitalism they just thought you know sometimes you got to yeah, pick your battles different strategy or yeah maybe the value of maybe the value of a defeated soviet union wasn't quite as great you know like maybe mm. for for them like maybe they had a way of achieving their goals maybe like integrated global capitalism you know there's other ways to achieve it or uh you know the collapse of the soviet union like there's you know uh yeah other well, also they're they're like i don't know their heavy focus on the centrality of like western europe as basically like yeah. our, our main ally our main and it's like if you lose western europe to the communists then you're really screwed like i think right. for them that was the existential fear is that like france and you know maybe the uk and all these yeah. people would like drop out of Na like maybe drop out of nato and become socialists and just be like we don't want anything to do with you barbaric american like bloodthirsty imperialist mm -hmm. dogs so we had to keep yeah, up a certain amount of appearances really, yeah mm -hmm. it's interesting when you really extrapolate this because you know like you think about it yeah like it's it's uh, interesting to like give the to like kind of type the the presidents and stuff but you know once you get down to like the lower level like we're talking about sovietologists and like uh, academics and things like that and where like they fall like in this alignment because you know uh certainly like i think that it's much more uh you know precise and, and accurate to talk about these as like formulations of power but uh a lot of people you know within the the ruling elite but there's a lot of uh structures embedded in in those power formations you know like uh universities and stuff and mm -hmm. you know they produce ideas and uh everything so totally, uh totally. yeah like uh you got the one, whole cultural you know, cold war like apparatus going on as yeah well. exactly like you know is it maybe like a cultural you know is the cultural aspect of things you know maybe uh something like you know sponsoring modern art or whatever like that's mm -hmm. maybe more of like an atlanticist type uh strategy or like a yankee type uh idea it is you know like uh, uh yeah I, like a perverted uh, yankee idea of like tony podesta's art collection like that super atlanticist yeah, uh, you know. something like that yeah uh you know uh it, yeah i'm thinking now about the two mics and like he's gotta do martial law he's got you know it's gonna happen any day now he just <laughs> has to do throw it, it you know versus like well yeah Oglesby uh, quotes like a lot of uh he, qu he quotes some interesting stuff from miles copeland uh you know the the famous uh, ca guy we brought up before uh, before like some of him speaking in the early 70s and kind of formulating the way him talking about the future and how America is probably going to tend or really every modern country 
is going to start trending towards totalitarian control of their populations because he was predicting yeah. a, like an epidemic of left wing like internet ter- actually or at least like computerization in some way like uh i think that uh, maybe yeah. that was a that was a liberal that he was referencing who was like talking about the dangers of like technocratic fascism or something yeah um, maybe techno fascism yeah, yeah but what do you he actually yeah. was like but copeland was saying that there's going to be an epidemic of like uh probably the ussr and its allies just mashing the support left terrorism button over and over again mm-hmm. and there's yes. going to be left terrorism all over the world and that basically people are going to beg for the government to like apply these like more heavy-handed type of a uh, security right, state yeah, measures like they the did part. in the 60s yeah, that, mm-hmm. and that people yes. are gonna people are gonna like it and then sleep well at night you know when this happens and uh Oglesby's kind of grossed yeah, out by uh, it but. right the national review uh will demand for order sleep silence uh, <laughs> yes exactly yeah. he's exactly. Uh, also, right yeah uh, he's also, yeah, in uh, terms of um, just like a, a side note on Kennedy and Castro, there's a little interesting thing here about that that reminded me of Paul Ripson's speech at the Paris Peace Conference in 1949, when he talks mm-hmm. about the translations of Castro's speeches that were used in White House briefings and also in like world press and like the American press. And uh, these two authors, one was Bob Shear, they established that in the Kennedy White House, the CIA translator was either naive about the Spanish language or intentionally changed Castro's meaning. Uniformly, the CIA translations being presented to Schlesinger and the Kennedys for analysis made Castro sound harsher and more belligerent than he was, encouraging the picture of a tyrant governing against popular will. This played, uh, Oglesby argues, into a wider concert of Hunt-style disinformation being orchestrated from somewhere outside the Oval Office with the purpose of making the Oval Office, the Kennedy brothers think Castro had an unstable popular base and would be overthrown by the Cuban people if the United States would show support. So that's kind of interesting that they, it's like, well, I mean, mm-hmm. they were being psyop themselves by people like E. Howard Hunt who were now it's like now I want to go back and read. I want to double check like every single translation of like a communist leader that I've ever read on like Wikipedia or something, because like how often did they really do this where every time they translate you from a foreign language, it's like uh, kill like every bourgeois pig. Like we're going to steal your families. Uh, everyone's going to wear a gray jumpsuit. And like we hate life, bleh, like hail Satan. You know what I mean? Like. Mm-hmm. Like just how we saw with Robeson, where he was like speaking pretty tactfully and diplomatically and stuff, like knowing that he would might be reprinted in America, and they just totally, they just like turned him into like a Portland Antifa edgelord, like circa twenty twenty. It was just like <laughs> we deserve all your wealth. We're gonna come take it. Fuck you, like you know, and like they knew what kind of reaction that would have. So then I guess they were even doing it in the White House to Kennedy to make it sound like Castro is just this maniac and, you know, nobody likes him and just to get him the whatever they could to get him to sign off on the Bay of Pigs. And, uh, you know, of course, they yeah. never forgave him when he didn't fully sign off on it, and et cetera, et cetera. But it's interesting. Yeah. All the tricks that were being, you know, uh, played around with. This is uh, an interesting part. I think this is from mm-hmm. St. George. Uh, his quote's from uh, Andrew St. George, that, which is what I was thinking of when he discusses techno-fascism. Mm-hmm. A lot of this is very pressing. And, of course, you know, it was pretty timely, like, in the, you know, 70s as well. But it's especially, like, it, you know, uh, 
you can definitely uh, see the resonances of this uh, with what we're experiencing now. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, St. George uh, sees a monster he calls techno-fascism as emerging from the material conditions of ultra-modern production from the computerization of everyday life. You know, so he's... Uh, you know, not falling back on the uh, red terror as being the legitimation of the police state. You know, this is just something that's going to realize itself through, like, uh, the nature of, you know, the ultramodern production. His position is sociologically sophisticated, Oglesby says. Mm -hmm. He borrows knowledgeably from the Viberian literature and incorporates the pessimism of current observers like Jacques Ellul and Hannah Arendt uh, without a trace of unconfidence unconfidence saint george calls watergate uh the poisonous afterbirth of vietnam an end to external conflict the inward turning of the nation's aggressions the unmistakable first step toward genuine convergence with our erstwhile totalitarian opponents uh that you're gonna be upset about that okay yeah uh the united states intelligence is now turning inward in the citizens of this country the next logical step would be for an administration to do exactly what its people suspected of doing start mounting intelligence operations against citizen groups and assemblies a little bit late in 1972 to yeah uh, right like oh you know, they just started saying doing like it. oh Go one day you. this might happen yeah but Go talk uh, to your fucking hero ramsey clark who authorized operation chaos and COINTELPRO when he's attorney general but he's a hero in an aaron sorkin movie cool anyways um yeah i can't uh, with these li- this yeah. liberal like psycho history kind of thing of like like it, it that that feels very prescient to like the type of writing people do in like the atlantic today of like mm-hmm. yeah like, it's like one a day weird, yeah like a weird psychoanalyzing of like yeah like we were we were doing it so we just had to come back and do it to ourselves because we're so sick and like I don't, I don't know it's like it's it's different from saying like oh they brought the phoenix program back home eventually at least there's a there's a kind of um i don't know a, a, a materiality to that or, or something but it's like what i don't know yeah, his analysis is, like, very... Because, you know, he says, like, the era of foreign intervention is drawing to a close, and that's why, like, this is happening, you know? It's a LOL. similar thing to saying, like, the frontiers is appearing, so, like, now, you know, whereas, like, these... Uh, yeah, obviously, I, mean, I, well, I think we have, the thing with the frontier yeah. thing that is that Oglesby says it's a little bit more compelling is that the, that involves real resources and stuff that have a real like economic impact that trickles down and like every other aspect of society like when you have kind of like to in their conception kind of like a limitless land and just raw resources that you can just take like hey there's a buffalo Mm -hmm. let's just shoot it you know and uh and things like that um, those costs don't really get like added into this into the accounting so to speak and so there's this feeling of like you know oh god's just like providing us with all these free goodies it's awesome and then eventually when all the land gets taken up that's not around anymore and so you both have an economic problem but it also could have a kind of psychological or existential manifestation of like where's my free shit that i can use to like profit off of like all of a sudden and like you if you get trained to basically have that like helping you out the entire time then when you it's like going through withdrawal or something it's like hey where's my stimulus like and you know i think in some cases maybe the stimulus was kind of replaced by the federal government going in and and dumping money into all these defense you know companies and things like that and that might have you know helped it's like the methadone or whatever for these uh settler junkies (laughs) you know yeah um but you constantly um, need to keep like uh, supplying a new fix of, of something um i i can see that some 
that kind of being operative. Yeah, and I do think that, like, you know, well, Frontier, like, in a in a mythopoetic kind of, like, abstract way, there's always, like, frontiers. You know, you mentioned, like, the internet and, like, cyberspace. I think that the frontier of, like, people's inner lives, you know, yes. Uh, yes. is something that is... I think that is a know, frontier that's uh, being settled now in, like, new, sure. scary ways. Yes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, I think, yeah, and I so... Yeah, I feel like, yeah, you can definitely see on both hands, like, there's, you know, uh, a resonance between, like, the uh, liberal grappling with, like, certain things that we're experiencing now, like the pandemic, like uh, the Snowden stuff. This is kind of like a Snowden article, almost, like, Prism reveals that for the first Mm -hmm. time that, like, we have been spied on ever, you know, like, uh, or something Mm -hmm. like that, but... Yeah, yeah. Oh yes, my God. It, uh, yeah. And well, that that it also betrays the normie lib interpretation of Watergate. That was like, oh, like we never did a corrupt thing before, and then suddenly, like, what? Like the president was like spying on his political rivals. What? You know, like I've always been kind of annoyed ever since I learned a little more about Watergate, and I guess we can get into that in a second. Uh, that mm-hmm. it was like, oh, just like it's like the somehow like the original sin of like American politics is like, oh. Oh, that one time that one president got a little bit out of hand and you know spied on some people but i think that oglesby does a pretty good job of saying that like well first of all a lot of the same like organized crime and spooky right-wing cia figures were like very heavily involved in both like the bay of pigs the kennedy assassination and uh and watergate and like there's all these links between and of course there's that whole bay of pigs thing to quote nixon that was on one of the the watergate tapes where he repeatedly references like we don't want that whole bay of pigs thing to get out and it's not really clear why he's saying that but he seems to be referencing something because you know the bay of pigs did get out it was everybody knows about it so what what does he mean bay of pigs thing you know and a lot of people obviously postulate mm-hmm. he's right yeah about that's a things he knows about thing. the kennedy right. assassination mm-hmm. yeah uh-huh mm-hmm. and um not to say that like oh like richard nixon was the guy behind the grassy knoll with a rifle that was george hw bush obviously but uh <laughs> it was uh I think he knew more and was connected to figures who knew a lot more than, you know, he was letting on. And like none of that ever came up. It's kind of like Trump and Russiagate a little bit, though. I mean, Nixon did get caught like doing stuff and they actually got him. But it's a little bit like that where there's probably there were probably. And and yeah, we'll bring up Trump. Well, you know, I think that like it. I mean, it's. There has to be worse things that Trump was doing. There has to be worse things he was doing that just like. You know, well, doing some did, bullshit yeah, with like a Russian it's diplomat similar, or like it's similar to Nixon, but I feel like Trump had like Watergate level scandals like almost every week, you know. But I guess it was he a did. different climate. It just climate. didn't matter anymore. Yeah, you know, like well. yeah, it just didn't matter because like the the norms had changed. The norms had changed. But mm-hmm. in terms of the norms changing, I think that this is actually like an interesting like uh, this is the the. Uh, sort of reading of St. George that I, I find to be to be interesting. He says, uh, as St. George's example teaches, uh, the computerization of everyday life will seem to embody an irresistibly transcendent force. But let us remember that we are actually looking back on the certain knowledge of a clandestine America, which these writers, uh, speaking of Copeland and St. George, can still pretend to see as a future threat. 
we are trying to understand the onset of an achieved, not really a prognosticated predicament, so we may not be so abstract. We must find the concrete mechanisms. The way into the blind snarls of clandestinism was led not by pious elders seeking to quiet the public sleep, or by robots programmed with a contempt for democracy. The way was taken step by step by ordinary human beings acting under the burden of ordinary human motives. Uh, you know, and then he goes on to talk about the round table uh, and such things. But yeah. uh, I mean, know, they, yeah, they might be uh, doing sacrifices to to demons also. But, you know, I think well, that yeah, there's out. there's also <laughs> demons and jinn. But certainly the, the idea I, of normal, what I find yeah, to be yeah. compelling about that is like the idea of like the uh, unstoppable march of like the teleology of the like technological progress and like the dissolution of like our uh, you know, the transformations that we've had to endure and our like predation by these organizations that like we're mm-hmm. ta- like sort of taught to view as uh, you know, uh, inevitable results of like some kind of uh, yeah, like robotic process. Uh, yeah, it's mm-hmm. an interesting dialectic there, like because in a way, like yes, it is demonic and satanic, but part of the demonic and satanic power of it is like you know its uh, illusion of unstoppable power, you know, mm-hmm. and of being like this all pervasive uh, uh, yeah. thing. I mean, is it a satanic yeah, and always psyop? You know, to to say that humans are uh, are a shit categorically. And then like, I think it is. It's kind of satanic, you know, to say that. Yeah, well, to say like, humans are shit. Well, yeah, what do you, like, humans are categorized. Well, like, compared like, to hu- what? Yeah, or just yeah, human, like, humans compared are. Compared to well, what? Well, I don't know. I mean, it, it's one thing to, to say that, like, you know, uh, a typical kind of nihilist thing of, like, people suck. And, or even kind of an Adam Curtis thing. Like, people can't be trusted. You know, like, you can't trust them. So you have to control them. Because we're all just bad little piggies. And, you know, we just, like, it, it's a kind of early 20th century, like, mass psychology kind of mentality. I guess. That, but when you, know, you get into, um, like, these sort of moral uh, ideas of, like, people being bad then why i need to understand like what that's based on like when people just say like oh it sucks because like bad things happen like people are bad because like they harm each other or whatever like people collectively are bad because like people harm each other well then like why is harming each other bad you know what is that based on again like it gets into like a kind of uh Mm. axiology or like moral system and like it has to have some kind of grounding so like without that like all this stuff is meaningless but yeah. yeah, like another thing that I, but uh, like something else I think is like the uh, the constant postponement. You know, the idea like one day like this will happen when like you know we often find that like you know the gate of the chicken factory is like mm-hmm. slamming on us like what you know before we even can recognize it and that sense yes. of like always po- like that eternal postponement. I w- yeah I feel like we're gonna be talking about how the gate of the chicken factory is closing like long after it's already closed. Uh, <laughs> no, for sure. Yeah. Actually, Josh Harris get, you know, uh, as, as the most recent i've heard he says 2024 is when the door to the chicken factory is going to like fully close so, <laughs> okay you know, but uh, i can see people saying yeah. it again and again and again even when the door is closed yeah you know, maybe the door's already closed we don't know um yeah
last segment here, I think we can talk about Watergate a little bit because mm-hmm. I guess uh, I take for granted that, you know, we've already discussed how the official story of like, oh, the president's men was basically like a fiction, much like mm-hmm. Zero Dark Thirty was later. You know, I think it was like this Hollywood cooked up, you know, heroic narrative where the spooked out Washington Post just like got the story and, you know, Office of Naval Intelligence Officer uh, Bob Woodward just, you know, got deep throat to tell him all the blah 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 anyways yeah mm-hmm. uh yeah. that's all bullshit <laughs> and Oglesby calls it out but maybe we'll just read like his intro to this section of the story it gives probably the most succinct uh you know summary of his argument within the yankee cowboy paradigm so Oglesby writes that Watergate is a labyrinth we traverse in three directions in the following essays on howard hughes dorothy hunt and james mccord My central claim is that the arrest of the Watergate burglars was the result of a setup, that it was no more an accident that the plumbers were caught than that they were in the offices of the Democratic National Committee to begin with, that there were actually two secret operations at Watergate colliding invisibly as hunter and prey. The issues joined in this incredible intrigue are the general issues of the struggle between Yankees and Cowboys. The essay on Hughes takes up the Yankee cowboy theme at length and sets out to show in concrete detail how the larger forces thus indicated can be seen at work in the history of Hughes and his battles and wars, first against the East Coast banking combines around the Rockefellers, then against the International Crime Syndicate under Lansky. We follow step by step the evolution of the general features of the Watergate confrontation. The essay on Dorothy Hunt's death in an airplane crash argues that the crash was a result of sabotage with a Watergate-related motive, bearing on the crisis of the Howard Hunt White House blackmail scheme. I do not know or pretend to know how or by whom this plane was brought down, any more than I know who killed the two Kennedys and King. But just as in those cases, the careful review of the material evidence indicates that we are once again in the presence of an official deception in a capital case. The McCord essay then explores in detail the anomalies surrounding McCord's person and role in Watergate. The argument is that McCord did not blunder, that there was no slip-up to it when he left the telltale tape on the door, that he was actually an anti-Nixon double agent responsible to Yankee interests, point man in another Yankee attempt at counter-coup, this one a success. So, you know, pretty different from the story we were all taught. But mm-hmm. yeah, given everything, now we both we both kind of skimmed through different parts of this section. I don't know what yeah, what jumped out at early. you. I guess yeah. We, I guess maybe we talk about Howard Hughes first, and just like mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. I don't know if we could really do justice to Howard Hughes in today's episode. I think we might have to really like return back to to him, and because there's so much weird shit that he was involved in, and he has such a kind of insane life uh, biography. But I do think that. Um, yeah i do think he provides an interesting uh context of howard hughes in in this like yankee cowboy thing the way oglesby describes it hughes unites in his single person all the major sides of cowboy capitalism's current situation its compromised relationship to organized crime its servility towards militaristic authority its last-ditch entrepreneurial desperation and bitterness its gradual transformation into multi-corporatized i.e monopolized business structures in spite of all Yet Hughes was not the ally of big crime, and he was not, finally, Nixon's friend. So that's interesting. I don't know if you could really read into that, kind of like it sounds a little bit like Trump or mm-hmm. maybe some other kind of people. Or I don't know, like a maybe like a, a – who's that West Virginia, like, coal tycoon who ran for governor and a lot of people died in his mind? Was his name, like, Blankenship or something? Kind of reminds me of that, like, just the kind of um, – 
like super corrupt, uh, servile towards the military, engaged in last ditch entrepreneurial desperation and bitterness and like the gradual transformation into, uh, yeah, multi-corporate. Oh, business. Are you talking about Don Blankenship? I, uh, I think I am. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, he did have a, a mine safety incident. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah right. Yeah. And he was. <laughs> and then yeah. he ran for governor yeah. after that, like on a save coal platform, you know. He ran um, for Senate in West Virginia, and then uh, okay. he was the Constitution Party candidate in 2020. Uh, <laughs> there you go. Uh, for president, there you that go. is. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, Howard Hughes, uh, he, he combines the weird worlds of like mobbed up casinos like weird cia expeditions and like aerospace engineering all kind of in one yeah and like hollywood as well oh Uh, yeah hollywood too of course yeah yeah Yeah, it was a hollywood studio head as well so he really Mm -hmm. combines all this i've actually never seen the aviator the scorsese movie about him yeah me neither i actually haven't seen it either i remember it coming out and like wanting to see it uh Mm -hmm. but for some Mm -hmm. reason like i never did i i don't know yeah. but i yeah. i didn't know much at the time uh, it came out about howard hughes except that he was like this eccentric yeah i'm guy sure it and... doesn't do justice to i'm sure it's kind of like i don't know i feel like my impression of it was that it was sort of this like character study like kind of like a citizen kane type thing mm-hmm. like yes oh, he yeah exactly for long and he had like a, a movie theater in his house and had like, jars filled with his know. pee everywhere yeah like just very yeah. creepy he did kind of go insane near the end right. and i also haven't seen the movie it got it got really slammed as like terrible but i think it was called rules don't apply and it was like a warren Beatty passion project that he'd wanted to make for years where he plays howard hughes but apparently it was just like weird like i think i don't know it was all about him like seducing one of his like contract actresses or something or like a love triangle developing with like a young actor like falls in love with his like co-star but she's under contract to like she can't sleep with anybody except for howard hughes or something like i think he had a rule like that in his uh, studio um mm. and wait did he run rko uh no, yeah, was his, what was. was his studio? Yes, um, it was RKO. Yeah. So he, I mean, he even produced Citizen Kane then, <laughs> basically. Yeah. Wow. How about that? Yes. And Scarface. Uh, and uh, wow, the the three three of the movies mentioned on his Wikipedia are The Racket, Hell's Angels, and Scarface. It's very uh, loaded right there. Hmm. Um, obviously, yes. before the Hell's <laughs> Angels, you know, maybe that was like a, a coded uh, shout out to, hmm. you know. Yeah, uh, the straight Satans. Uh, yeah, but uh, yeah. very, um, very, uh, some lurid movies before the, the Hayes yeah. Code was enacted. But I'm certain the aviator doesn't like implicate Howard Hughes in like a, you talk about the aviator. Uh, mm-hmm. he, he aviated Dorothy Hunt into uh, oblivion. He aviated her to hell in a, bu- in a bucket. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Allegedly. Well, he did I almost mean, go to hell like in a directly, bucket by crashing but, a few times. Yeah, not directly, but well, kind of directly. You know, he he's very much like a uh, the driving the motor of the whole thing. Uh, you know, if he didn't personally carry it out. Yeah, yeah. and uh, yeah, also yeah, instrumental in the development of Las Vegas as a sort of you know a casino gambling mecca. And you and basically, I think you know the mafia originally. I think it was what Bugsy Siegel and maybe Mo Dalitz who kind of set up the mob casinos in vegas and then 
And then Hughes basically like burst onto the scene and started buying up uh, a lot of the uh, hotels, uh, including the Sands, Frontier, Silver Slipper, Castaways, and Landmark. And after a while, became the largest employer in Nevada, in all of Nevada. And, you know, had a lot of really, uh, really expensive, like experimental aircraft contracts with the Pentagon, Mm -hmm. uh, some of which he was criticized for for not like actually producing them <laughs> just like getting paid for concept uh it might have been the xf-11 yeah only two prototypes and a mock-up uh were completed even though the Pentagon, or yeah the pentagon or i guess not the pentagon yet but the, the department uh the u.s army air force ordered a hundred of them in 1943 and then he like he built two and then crashed one and almost died and then i guess that was the end of that but uh, very uh, plugged-in individual who, yes, eventually kind of went insane and uh, made all kinds of, yeah, other experimental aircraft. It also made the Glomar Explorer, which I think there was, I think there was a whole thing around the Glomar Explorer where he, he wanted to do, like, deep-sea exploration, but they were actually trying to find, like, a, a Soviet submarine that had sunk. And that Mm -hmm. was sort of a cover. He did contracting work with Henry Kaiser of future Kaiser Permanente uh, fame, even though he was, I I believe that's right. Yeah, he was, when I grew up in the Bay Area, there was like the Kaiser shipyards in, um, in like the kind of the North Bay near like Vallejo. And uh, they were called Liberty Ships. And he just like built uh, a bunch of them like really fast. And now they're all like junked in like a, kind of neglected corner of like the bay area i think they might have gotten rid of them eventually but in the 90s there were like dozens of these like rusty old world war ii uh ships and then as you do uh yeah he had the kaiser shipyards in richmond california uh and then decided i think actually he he had some kind of deal i think he he offered like health care to like his workers at the shipyards and then was like oh i should turn this into like a healthcare company (laughs) or something. And basically then like that, and then, you know, had like, uh, I think I was Augustus Alexander's cousin and Tim Leary working for Kaiser Permanente in Oakland in the, uh, like the mid to late 1950s, the Kaiser family foundation, interestingly moved from Oakland down to Menlo park, which is right next to Palo Alto and Stanford big conglomerate now. So anyways, uh, Howard Hughes was like super wrapped up, uh, in, uh, with him during World War II. I don't know. Anyways, like, there's so much to go with with, like, the whole Watergate thing. What even to focus on? Um, I know there's a few things that, well, that kind of relate tangentially to, to Trump uh, that I wanted oh, to yeah, mention. Oh, yeah, right. You wanted to mention the Resorts International thing because that yes, doesn't just there... relate to Trump, but it relates to, like, Candy Jones. Yep, uh, yep. You know, We're really building out the lore we, the of Candy Paradise Jones. Island. Yes, in the Candy Jones episode, we brought up the kind of uh, Rockefeller-Atlantis connection uh, there. So there are some good tidbits on that. Uh, there are. Sure. And again, uh, like, yeah, this, yeah. Is a, this, is, this is probably one of the earliest mentions in any kind of, you know, conspiracy writing or whatever that kind of uh, focuses on Resorts International and just like how sus it is. Um, it does mention here there's a company at... I think was subsumed by it uh there was an individual named James Golden and Howard Hughes met James Golden in the Bahamas uh and James Golden was working for a company called Intertel which was like a private intelligence 
network, a private intelligence company that was contracted by usually corporations, but also by various probably intelligence figures and maybe organized crime and things like that. But this guy, uh, James Golden, he was a Secret Service guy for um, he w- yeah he was a former Secret Service man. And uh, he was known around, his reputation was his, quote, Nixon's man. And he was assigned to Vice President Nixon in 1957. He accompanied him to the Soviet Union and Central America. They uh, apparently got stoned together in Venezuela. I don't know what the source of that quote is, but uh, they became very close. And when Nixon left the White House in 1960, Golden left the Secret Service to take a job as security chief for Lockheed. And in 1968, Lockheed gave him a leave of absence to join Nixon's campaign as director of security. And after Nixon's election, Golden became Resorts International's deputy director of security on Paradise Island and was a founding officer of Intertel and one of its vice presidents at the time. Uh, yeah, uh, at the time of the events of uh, November. I'm not sure what that's referring to. Um, he later joined the Hughes Las Vegas staff. And as of summer 1975, he was at the Justice Department as chief of the organized crime strike force of the law enforcement assistant agency. <laughs> Um, yeah, so that was, uh, that was, oh, he was referring to Thanksgiving 1970 when Robert Mayhew, who was, uh, Howard Hughes's right-hand man and fixer, um, right. was, uh, I don't know, kicked out of, uh, Las Vegas or something like that. There was, uh, all kinds of stuff going on there, but yeah, that there's a couple, uh, let me see if there's any other references to Resorts International, which for anybody that doesn't know the reason we're, uh, talking about it is because Donald Trump purchased the majority share in resorts international in 1987 and got into like a corporate ownership battle with merv griffin over it uh and basically yeah so there's it also showed up in mark lombardi one of mark lombardi's uh unfinished interlocks that he was working on before he died and was pretty much pretty much uh, understood to be a i mean it really does line up with like the entire all the cast of characters that Oglesby is talking about, like basically a joint venture between Alan Dulles and the Meyer Lansky syndicate that I think was maybe started yeah in the 1950s and had this casino um, on Paradise Island where also Candy Jones, who I, I certainly believe was uh, hypno-programmed um, by the CIA in like an experimental capacity where her handler instructed her to go and programmed her to jump off of a cliff and commit suicide which was yes, all, it she, was, she was just to go yes, down so to resorts international didn't actually maybe do so for those who maybe haven't heard that episode although you should definitely listen to it uh but yeah yeah. yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, uh, she did not do it. Difficult. I wonder if James Golden yes. was like the security chief at the time that she did that. And it's like, oh, our man is in charge. We, we postulated like what a, where's a better place for like a, a the CIA hypno programmed asset to like commit suicide in a very sus way. Like, oh, yeah. Go to the CIA mafia casino island. Um, that was also. Oh, yeah. By the way, it it gets. I think it used to be called Hog Island. There's a few sus owners of it, including a Swedish Nazi industrialist named Axel Venner Gren, who went on to build the Disneyland monorail 
and also found the Mexican telecom company um, in Mexico in like the 1950s and was a very close friend of Herman Goering and also the uh, abdicated king, was it King Edward? Um, or who was the one who was a Nazi and then gave up the throne in the 1930s? Because he was made uh, was, governor of the Bahamas during the war. Uh, was King, King Edward didn't uh, abdicate because he um, was a Nazi, did he? Uh, it wasn't. Well, and I'm sorry. I, I sorry. He didn't abdicate. He didn't abdicate because he was a Nazi. He abdicated because he married an American girl, Wallace Simpson. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not uh, new under the sun. Uh, you get kicked out of the royal family. Yes. If you marry but an was he also a Nazi? Uh, yes, he was. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, those, they those, did those, go to tour Nazi Germany. Yes. Right. No, no. Right, he was right. an admirer yes, of Hitler. Yeah. He was a. He was a. Mm-hmm. He was actually. I mean, yes, maybe not uh, like. But the, there was that picture in the British tabloids a few years ago of him getting like a four-year-old queen elizabeth at the time to like do a nazi salute and he's like standing behind her like here's how you do it and like smiling at the camera yeah yeah yeah. this guy yeah he's very sus but apparently him and axel venergren were just like great buddies in the bahamas like during the war and i think we're I think Axel Wenner was suspected of being like a Nazi spy, but then of course after the war, like he becomes best friends with Walt Disney and builds the uh, the Alweg, uh, I think was his company, and they built the uh, super based uh, futuristic monorail. So you know you can see the connections yeah, well, just like sp- spiral in like every direction. Run on time, you know. You uh-huh. gotta, uh, exactly, yeah, they, and so yeah, Paradise yeah. Island in the Bahamas. Uh, super sus. Uh, it's, I think Saul Kersner now owns it, and uh, Donald Trump. He didn't own it for that long, but we've always wondered, like, what was he up to buying Resorts International? It it seemed kind of a random. He was kind of getting into like the casino game, you know, during that decade, but. It, I don't know. The level of his interest uh, is uh, considering that he was probably doing like money laundering for like organ. He was he, was, he definitely he used to brag about rubbing elbows with like organized crime people in New York all the time. I and mean, he's in the construction business. So mm-hmm. really kind of makes you want as his celebrity was rising and, you know, he was becoming this like Mr. Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous and uh, all that kind of stuff. I know Adnan Khashoggi, I think, had an island uh, in the vicinity of that um where he had some deal with like he could fly drug planes onto it and like the customs people would come by the next day (laughs) you know like oh okay it's clean um but yeah so resorts international ended up owning 94 percent of intertel this private intelligence thing so oglesby says like even if intertel was not the cia of the lansky syndicate it was still at least the cia of resorts international and Resorts International, whether it was a syndicate front or not, was still Hughes' chief competition. Oh, so there's even a kind of, yeah, like a, 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 once again, a dialectical rivalry going on between perhaps this, this mobbed-up Lansky casino and whatever uh, Hughes was trying to do. But th- there's other stuff as well. Uh, there's a lot. With, I, I, Robert Mayhew it would be another interesting person to to kind of spin off and do a whole yeah, thing he's, uh, he's all over this for sure uh, uh the, yes. the grandfather of our favorite podcasters uh robert mullen and company uh get a good mention here as being a very sus outfit um that was mm-hmm. connected to itt and creep and uh all these other things oh even douglas caddy worked out of mullen offices during the halcyon days of the huston plan uh douglas caddy is an interesting guy actually we should we should try to get him he's like still alive i've heard him go on ed opperman's radio show he has some wild stories about the watergate era he has a story 
like I shit you not, like where Henry Kissinger like sent him to be the courier to bring some kind of like uh, he had to like tape like a, a like a audio reel to like his chest or something and like secretly transported to somebody else that apparently had evidence about like um aliens on it <laughs> so it's uh, like very, yeah it's like it's like he's got it like but he was a real figure that was like really involved in this world and was a watergate lawyer but then he has this story about like making a some kind of treaty with like et's and like nick and and kissinger was using him as a go-between to communicate some kind of so he's got an even like a deeper level of i guess watergate intrigue going on there i don't know he might just be psyoping i have no idea but it's it it's pretty far out so yeah uh, yes yeah. it certainly is Merritt reveals uh that he met three times with president nixon in a deep underground location beneath the white house uh nixon read him a letter saying the u.s was protecting an extraterrestrial being and that scientists at los alamos were able to communicate with it and obtain advanced technology and science oh he put the letter in a time <laughs> capsule that he hid somewhere in the white house <laughs> wow while the, yeah. the time capsule was still in there yeah also he, he letter, also claims he and yeah, on the front okay. was written to Henry Kissinger. Uh, yeah, right? See? Okay, I did Subjects from the Planet yeah. X. Also, okay. Um, okay, this is the this is an ultimate thing. I just see this right here. Uh, yeah, he says in his autobiography, Being There, Eyewitness to, to History, Caddy claims that when he asked Howard Hunt why President John F. Kennedy was assassinated, E. Howard Hunt told him it was because Kennedy was about to disclose the alien presence to the Soviet Union. <laughs> no no okay yeah so i guess uh kennedy was gonna do the ultimate like betrayal and yeah, tell those wow. awful commies about the alien presence and he would have given away stopped. the ultimate strategic advantage uh yeah, of, yeah. yeah well would. maybe he was gonna tell them about the yeti but uh or the sasquatch <laughs> there's but, some uh, there, there are this... a number of weird like things around both these events that uh that, that remember i don't know if we ever brought it up before but timothy leary had a very bizarre i think it was i don't know if it came directly from him but i feel like maybe it had to do with claire booth loose who was a washington dc socialite um who was i think murdered while jogging i want to say uh in no maybe not um but let me just double check no she had brain cancer never mind oh henry this is henry loose's wife i think um i want to say it was her that that said that like timothy leary somehow got like jfk to start dropping at uh, i don't know somebody who there jfk was having an affair lsd with. stuff around watergate oh sorry finish your story first but okay, i feel like yeah. there's a bunch of I'm, like weird yeah mm -hmm. i'm uh, yeah i'm trying to remember exactly who because i don't think it was uh oh mary pincho meyer i get these these uh three named uh washington dc like cia people cord meyer's wife so she i think claimed and maybe timothy leary was okay yeah here we go uh, spartacus educational actually has uh this uh thing right here you know timothy leary best friends of g gordon liddy who is uh yeah, no longer with BFFs us as of this too. week yes. yeah just the uh, good buddies okay here yeah here it is according to timothy leary's biography flashbacks he claims mary pinchett meyer phoned him on the day after john f kennedy was assassinated and said they couldn't control him anymore he was changing too fast he was learning too much they'll cover everything up i gotta come see you. i'm scared i'm afraid 
And I guess like what she was referring to is like they had been doing LSD together and Kennedy was like, whoa, like, wait a minute, man. Like, I'm a hippie now and wanted to like end the war. And it's like, no. I don't know, somehow like they tried to MK him, wow. but like it did the opposite thing. And he just wanted to like declare world peace. And so they just had to kill him like he was getting too enlightened. So uh, like really got to consider the source with that one that, oh, if only, you know, JFK like kept tripping and didn't get murdered for it, then we would have just had like world peace uh not quite convinced but speaking of wives getting in of these people getting involved in situations do you want to talk a little bit just about the the plane crash of dorothy hunt real quick but yeah one thing related to lsd that i felt i should mention that i discovered kind of uh ancillary to this Mm. is that uh i guess uh jack anderson uh he had covered like nixon unfavorably oh yeah actually he was the one who had uh uncovered the idea of a secret loan from Howard Hughes to Nixon's brother, you know, back in 1960. And so Nixon already didn't like him. And then in 1972, apparently, there was like a discussion of assassinating this guy. And one of their techniques that they discussed, Liddy and Hunt, they uh, discussed like covering his steering wheel with LSD so that it would wow. like seep into his skin and make him crash. <laughs> uh, so. Wow. These people obviously were interested in the idea of arranging vehicle crashes. That's basically what Oglesby alleges about uh, the crash of was it, it was five Ted Kennedy. No, not no. Ted Kennedy. I mean, although maybe. 53? I mean, they probably did also try to assassinate Ted Kennedy. But yeah, uh, Dorothy yeah, Hunt's plane, United Airlines Flight Five Fifty Three. Yeah, which there was the first like seven thirty seven to crash you know so Mm. it was a big you know there's a lot of suspicious stuff around the plane there's you know it's not yeah i kind of like i gave the wrong impression before it's not really like that howard hughes like did it like i mean i guess it is possible because it's all very murky uh and it Mm -hmm. involves planes uh which would seem to be the thing that like you know a deranged uh industrialist obsessed with planes might contrive to Mm. do but the main suspect is like the cia that the cia caused the crash and it was, yeah. in fact, Charles Colson himself, who, you know, uh, who was Nixon's special counsel, I think, during Watergate, who implicated the CIA originally. Yeah. Uh, yeah. One of our I, um, I do see that uh, right away. One of our uh, one of our favorite old school conspiracy researchers, Sherman Skolnick, uh, alleged that the CIA had basically sabotaged it. I think at the time he was really on the hunt of a lot of like Chicago corruption and all that stuff. So, wow. So Chuck Colson even said that it was the CIA. Yes. There's actually a uh, interesting article in, uh, I guess it was originally published in the nation. There's like a, a mirror of it, like a janky mirror on time.com that I'm reading. It's called uh, the nation Colson's weird scenario. So maybe this is Mm -hmm. about the nation uh, and it's from Mm -hmm. time, but Anyway, uh, the CIA was involved in all aspects of Watergate, said Colson, as he ticked them off. The agency helped carry out the burglary of the office of Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist, destroyed evidence, put out a cover story to camouflage its part in the Watergate break-in, and tried to divert the FBI from investigating it. He confessed to Bass, so that, you know, that rivalry between the CIA and the FBI, uh, and their, their friction between each other that would factor into another famous uh, plane incident. Uh, he confessed to Bass. I don't see, don't say this to my people. They think I'm nuts. I think they killed Dorothy Hunt. He was referring to the death of E. Howard Hunt's wife in an air crash in 1972. 
Coulson thought that the agency was trying to silence her. Almost gratuitously, Coulson told Bass that he believed Howard Hughes has gi had given $100,000 and even more to the president and his family for their private use. Hughes can blow the whistle on him. When mm -hmm. parts of uh, Coulson's yarn were published last week, I guess this article was published in 1974, uh, no one was more interested than Senator Howard Baker, vice chairman of the Watergate Committee. Suspecting a CIA link to Watergate, Baker had written a 35-page unpublished report in the subject with some help from Coulson. But Baker aides claim there is nothing in the report to substantiate Coulson's charge that the agency had a role in planning or executing the Watergate break-in, much less plotting against the president. There are, of course, some unanswered questions about the CIA's relationship to Watergate. Some men deeply involved in Watergate, notably E. Howard Hunt Jr. and James McCord, were retired longtime employees of the agency. A CIA agent was on hand when McCord's wife burned some of his personal papers. Coulson's monstrous plot, however, can scarcely be constructed from such shards. Why de then did he unburden himself to Bass? One theory is that Coulson wanted to make a last desperate try to get himself and the president off the hook. So why not blame Watergate and the CIA, which is already highly suspect to much of the public and in no position to defend itself? If this was indeed the scheme, then considering how battered American institutions are and how in need of support and not defamation, it was one of the dirtiest tricks that Coulson has played to date. Hmm. But another explanation is that Coulson has lost touch with reality. When he was talking to Bast, he appeared calm at times, at times quite agitated. At one point, he remarked to the detective, You might think I belong in an asylum. A Coulson associate thinks that impending imprisonment may have weighed on him. Look, you're going to jail. You get pretty desperate. In a sense, Coulson's CIA fantasies are not that far removed from some of his previous schemes. Firebombing the Brookings Institution. <laughs> what? Was, uh, <laughs> critical, critical support. Uh, yeah. for, uh, for instance, or forging cables linking President Kennedy to the assassination of South Vietnam's President Diem. The key question oh, that's is a big not thing why everyone Coulson, likes to do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, mm -hmm. he forged cables. I think even E. Uh, Howard yeah. Hunt did that. He said that, oh, yeah, totally, trust yeah, me, mm -hmm. uh, Kennedy totally did that. Uh, I think that, yeah, he, like, it was uh, Coulson's original plan. I think he directed mm -hmm. them to do it. Uh, I th like, uh, And they were, like, you know, tasked with coming up with how. Probably the same thing with, like, uh, putting the LSD on the steering wheel. Uh, yeah. The key question is not why Coulson is the way he is, but why he was ever given easy access to the highest office in the land. So, you know, a uh, pretty erm uh, article about the whole situation. You know, he's mm. gone. Obviously, he's gone crazy. Or, uh, you know, he's trying to get himself off the hook. Yeah. You yeah. know, without uh, crediting anything that uh, he was suggesting. But I just wanted to, to point out, because um, actually, Oglesby does dedicate a little time talking about Sherman Skolnick's claims uh, in that chapter. And kind of uh, shares some stuff that I actually didn't know about Sherman Skolnick that I'm going to keep in mind for the future. Because mm -hmm. he, he wrote about men. I think his blog, I hope it's still alive. He has some really good, interesting stuff. But uh, I guess Oglesby said that the criticism of the official pilot error theory of the Hunt crash has been overwhelmingly identified with Sherman Skolnick, a Chicago-based private investigator, and his colleague, companion, and bodyguard, Alex Batos, who has a murky background and claims former FBI, CIA, and narcotics connections. Skolnick and Batos are a pungent Dickensian pair. Skolnick has been confined from birth to a wheelchair. He is intense, loud, overbearing, quick, suspicious, sometimes merry, all upper torso and arms, boisterous, gnomic-faced. Sounds like Alex Jones a little bit. Uh, 
Vados is more somber and sepulchral. <laughs> okay. Yeah, uh, he says he was at Opalaka in 1960-61 with E. Howard Hunt on the Bay of Pigs campaign. He carries a pistol and is fond of flashing it. He dresses with old-fashioned nattiness and polishes to a high gloss both his black hair and his black patent leather loafers. Skolnick and Vados have seen each other through great controversies. They project an ominous, swirling, shadowy atmosphere, Skolnick wheeling and challenging, Vados in a tailored flag jacket brooding on collapse. Uh, the instrument of their collaboration is Skolnick's Citizens Committee to clean up the courts. Their most spectacular hit so far, until United Flight 553, was Chicago's once immaculate liberal, Governor Otto Kerner, whom they discovered and exposed in a racetrack payoff scheme. Skolnick and Bados have also helped put away several Illinois Supreme Court judges on corruption counts. Skolnick was instantaneous in charging that the crash of United Flight 553 was the result of sabotage and that there was a big Watergate connection. In the weeks immediately following the crash, he claims to have received a flood of information from protected inside sources supporting him in this belief. He also tried to make that information public, thus to generate a controversy and a demand for a new investigation the crash oh this is kind of interesting uh in the fear of claim and counterclaim that followed skolnick's voice often reached an intensity that many found hysterical anyone who disagreed with him about anything your author much included he denounced as a secret agent of the cia the controversy <laughs> over his personality came to interfuse with the controversy over the crash he made it easy for his detractors to ridicule him for rampant paranoia and to ignore his specific claims as erm wild raving Yet in the instances in which the dispute has been resolved by a subsequent factual disclosure, Skolnick's contentions have been substantially borne out. The question of FBI involvement in the crash investigation is the perfect case in point. So, uh, yeah, I think it, it is interesting. Uh, oh, this is OK. This is this is an interesting reminds me of uh, Gary Caridori's plane uh, uh, spontaneously crashing. The Boeing 737 had barely hit, said Skolnick. Before the crash site was a swarm with large numbers, he sometimes said carloads, sometimes 200, sometimes dozens of, quote, federal people who shouldered Chicago police and firemen aside and kept to themselves why and on what authority they were doing so. When I first encountered the array of Skolnick's arguments about the crash, I dismissed this particular item, the 200 FBI agents prowling the wreckage within moments of the crash, as an improbable piece of melodramatic adornment. In my original summary of Skolnick's case in the Boston Phoenix, I left the point out altogether, concentrating on what I regarded as his more impressive arguments. But then came the disclosure, as a result of Skolnick's agitation in Washington, of the two letters which I reprint in their entirety below. The first is from the chairman of the National Transportation Safety Board, John Reed, to acting FBI Director William Ruckelshaus. The second is Ruckelshaus's reply. The NTSB is a putatively independent branch of the Department of Transportation with responsibility for investigating all accidents, much like Gary Caridori's, where they're like, oh, nothing to see here. So I guess, uh, I don't know. I guess, let me see. I, does it bear it out? They wrote to the FBI director that our investigative team assigned to this incident discovered on the day following the incident that several FBI agents had taken a number of non-typical actions relating to this accident within the first few hours following the accident. Included were... For the first time in the memory of our staff, an FBI agent went to the control tower and listened to the tower tapes before our investigators had done so. And for the first time to our knowledge, in connection with an aircraft accident, an FBI agent interviewed witnesses to the crash, including flight attendants on the aircraft, prior to the NTSB interviews. As I'm sure you can understand, these actions, particularly with respect to this flight on which Mrs. E. Howard Hunt was killed, have raised innumerable questions in the mind of those with legitimate interest in ascertaining the cause of this accident. 
included among those who amassed is the the bunch of government committees, um, and they say uh, on the basis of informal discussions. It is likely the questions as to what specific actions were taken by the FBI in conjunction with the aircraft accident and why such actions were taken will come up in a public oversight hearing. Okay, so they, they were just asking for, like, more information. And, okay, here's the thing. We're, uh, Director William Rucklishow says... Approximately 50 FBI agents responded to the crash scene. The first ones arriving within 45 minutes of the crash. Uh, he also claims that basically uh, the FBI had no... The fact that Mrs. E. Howard Hunt was on board the plane was unknown to the FBI at the time our investigation yes. was started. So then but how did they, 50 yeah, FBI exactly. agents like sped over there immediately and right. interviewed the witnesses, including the flight attendants. Something uh, yeah. Oglesby brings up is that like the FBI was tailing her, but like they didn't like follow her onto the plane uh which mm. i feel like you know what you wouldn't necessarily need to follow someone onto a plane if you were tailing them but yeah. like the idea that they didn't know she was on the plane and the fact that they like swarm there quickly that's one of the big things that he points out there's also the cyanide thing uh what was the cyanide you know thing? which the cyanide thing is basically you know it kind of like falls apart a little bit but there's something there james walsh administrative assistant to the cook county coroner told james brady of new york magazine we found seven bodies which contained enough cyanide to kill them we are not saying cyanide killed them but that there was enough of it to have done so brady notes that walsh refused to say whether or not the pilot's body contained cyanide but wow. Skolnick had already unearthed FF, FAA technical exhibit uh, number 6A, docket number SA-435, entitled Human Factors Group Chairman's Factual Report uh, by C. Hayden Leroy. Page 8 of this exhibit contains in its entirety a typewritten table introduced by the words Federal Aviation Administration, Civil Aeromedical Institute, Aviation Tactology Laboratory, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, examined specimens from three aircraft occupants. Results were as followed. Among other things, the table shows that the three whose bodies were examined by the Civil Aeromedical Institute were Captain Whitehouse, Flight Officer W.O. Coble, and a first-class passenger otherwise unidentified. <laughs> according to ntsb oh. yeah like of course we can put it together by the item cyanide the value entered for captain whitehouse is 3.9 milligrams per millimeter in the columns for coble and the first class passenger there are hyphens indicating the test for cyanide was not carried out on them what does it mean that whitehouse had 3.9 milligrams per millimeter of cyanide in him for the record, let us first note that NTSB had some trouble establishing this figure. The Chicago coroner's office reported to begin with that White House's blood showed cyanide in the amount of 2.11 milligrams per milliliter, an extremely high amount, which by itself would establish a prima facie case of foul play. So Ronald Dorfman, a defender of the no-sabotage theory, you know, an editor of the Chicago Journalism Review, which Skolnick, a true-to-character, announces the CIA front, wrote <laughs> that he checked this figure with uh, Paul W. Smith, chief of the Aviation Toxicology Laboratory of the Civil Aeromedical Institute, and that Dr. Smith told him, we are very unhappy and frankly don't know how they did their measurements. He is talking about the Chicago coroners, a handful of whom were fired for incompetence on account of this controversy. Smith continued, they picked up cyanide in 10 or 12 victims and they were all very high. Then they realized they probably made an error, which they interpreted to be a decimal error, and they altered their report. In moving the decimal, their figures became innocuous, all less than one microgram. Uh, uh, yeah. How, so how do you like, get oops. trace amounts of cyanide in your system? 
you know, even if they say, well, I don't oh, know, I feel like you, you can. There you is like could. cyanide and other stuff, right? That mm. also reminds me of an anecdote that was given to R. Fletcher Proud or that R. Fletcher Prouty provided to Oglesby uh, earlier on when he was talking about the Bay of Pigs. That I feel like just because of the numbers involved is like uh, worth men- and also mm-hmm. moving decibel points. Where basically he claimed that, yeah, here it is. Prouty supports Haynes Johnson's view that Eisenhower did not support the decision to invade Cuba. He writes, in fact, all of the Eisenhower schemes were extremely modest when it came to action against Cuban soil and property. In an interview I had with Prouty in Washington in 1973, he added an interesting detail. What Eisenhower had approved in the way of an anti-Castro action program, said Prouty, was a 33-man project looking toward the feasibility of Mm. forming a guerrilla base in the countryside. But within days of the election of Kennedy, says Prouty, quote, orders came down, he does not say from where, to change the 33s on the program's personnel records into 3300s. So uh, I guess they like it's like they took the approval of, yeah for 33 and then like just etched in like two more th- two more zeros so that they could like recruit 3300 Cuban Gasanos uh to invade like with an entire armed force as opposed to just some random guerrillas but still 33 um <laughs> like what's that what's that all about with like everybody planning the bay of pigs like we need third we need like some multiple of 33 to go it that feels like some weird like and then if you think about king kill 33 which i know we didn't get to talk yes. about but that's all about like that the numbers right there and of course the main and yeah, also this is like reminding me of chief david henry and like yes. the uh or D- david x henry and like we have you know uh officers in like 33 states or whatever uh uh-huh. <laughs> It's also, also uh, I'm also thinking about a uh, Tex Joe uh, 330, uh, Ooh, you know. Yes, yes, yes. Um, uh. Also, I think that also when you look uh, at how things played out down the road, uh, I, I'm just double checking it right now. But I believe that the head of the Warren Commission, uh, Justice Earl Warren, was a 30 third degree mason as well yes he was a 33rd degree scottish right mason and was the grand master of california for one year and uh yeah yeah and he was you know a, a californian uh basically oh you know the uh, jade Hoover, by the way 33rd degree inspector general honorary in 1955 and was given the grand cross of honor the highest recognition by the scottish right in 1965 so we're just swimming in Masons. Even uh, Simone, even Simone Bolivar. I did not know that, but that's a little bit upsetting. I don't know what that means. Simone Bolivar was a 33rd degree Mason as well. Before we leave the cyanide thing behind, you know, this is you know just a final note on this. Oglesby says, Dr. Smith proceeded to analyze a blood specimen from the pilot, but not the others, to see how much cyanide actually was present. And the value he came up with was not an innocuous point uh, to 11 micrograms per milliliter, which is the value arrived at by assuming that there was an error in the placing of the decimal point. Mm-hmm. Rather, it is the 3.9 micrograms per milliliter value we found in Exhibit 6A. That value in the first place does not bear out the Chicago coroner's guess that their assumed error was in the decimal. There is still a difference of a whole magnitude between their adjusted value of 0.2 micrograms per milliliter and Dr. Smith's new value of 0.9 microgra- uh, sorry, 3.9 micrograms per milliliter. Uh, it's not an innocuous level. A fact which even Dorfman concedes indirectly when he notes that 
This is the highest blood cyanide reading Dr. Smith has ever recorded in a crash victim. Dorfman continues, a recent toxicologist I consulted confirmed that while a concentration of 3.9 micrograms is more than enough to kill, it is quite possible, depending on a concentration of cyanide gas in the air and the physical condition of the victim, to inhale that, to inhale that much before death occurs. Uh, so, okay, you know. Okay, so you literally uh, couldn't ingest that much cyanide without dying first. No, you couldn't. It definitely is enough to kill, but the idea is that, like, you know, and Oglesby, like, points out, that, like, the way the goalposts are kind of shifting. He says, like, a moment before we were being told that the pilot died a normal cyanide death, period. Now we are being told that it is not absurd on the facts to speculate that he did. Okay, now, th- this is giving me a lot of, like, flashbacks to, like, Kurt Cobain's kind of bizarre murder where he, like, shot himself up with, like, three grams of heroin and then somehow managed to, like pick up a shotgun and shoot himself when that level of heroin would immediately incapacitate you and then kill you. So like, it's like, Oh really? He just like, he like took off the little, he he put his little heroin kit away and you like uh, put it away all tidy and then grabbed a shotgun and then like stretched out really far because he was tiny. And then like, it's just like, what? Walked all the way to the greenhouse, you know, Uh, (laughs) just, yeah, yeah, just very bizarre that, I mean, they really wanted some people dead if they were, I don't, I don't know how you would get cyanide. I don't know. Did they have some hypno program to kill person on the plane that was like going to slip cyanide into their drinks and then go down with them? I have no mm, idea. I don't um, know. Or did they just put cyanide in like everybody, all the drinks, like so that everybody was going to die? Well, I guess they only found it in what, 12 people? Yeah, that's what they say. 12 people. Yeah, that's, that is strange. It's very strange. I guess Skolnick really went on in on the cyanide angle and, uh, made a lot of things and then got attacked there's a writer named dorfman who like ermed back against this kind of thing and said that it was all debunked um you know etc cetera, etc cetera. oh yeah dorothy hunt was in the first class cabin so hmm. <laughs> it's like i wonder if she was the one person in first class that uh that had it but maybe we can start to wrap up but i did find a good quote here he's talking about skullnick but i think it encapsulates a lot about the ontology of this book and even the ontology of this podcast um, and how we approach these critical paranoid issues. Oglesby, you know, after talking about like Dorfman, like attacking Skolnick for being a crazy conspiracy theorist, he says, still Skolnick's informed misses teach us more of the truth of Watergate power politics than the baseless reassurances Dorfman prefers. That is because, first, Skolnick's overall conception of what goes into politics, what constitutes it, what comes out, is currently rooted in real experience. So even wandering at his most hysterical uh, through a dismal swamp, as perhaps with the cyanide question and perhaps not, Skolnick still makes more sense and does more good teaching than those who use modest rhetoric to tell us there is nothing wrong. Something, in fact, may be quite wrong. The wrong may be of satanic magnitude, and there is no way the standard statistic-ridden political sociology models employed in conventional federal academic discourse can even focus the structured character of what is wrong. These models, these assumptions, give us a lone madman here and a lone madman there, as though our time's violent assault 
on presidential figures were the purest contingency, purest acts of God, unstructured, random events lying outside of the events constitutive of politics proper and of no and, and of no greater interest to the political scientist than the normal airplane accident or the normal heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> so, That's uh, literally B, like BTFO Chomsky. Uh, uh, yeah, ooh. literally random events. Uh, no greater interest uh, to the serious scientists at all. So I think he's right that like that people can't even even when Skolnick is like freaking out and making like uh, kind of uh, poorly sourced like speculative allegations. He has a better ontology of what this world really is. And so it mm-hmm. can be more valuable to listen to somebody like that than to like the experts who believe in the traditional ontologies of science is real, water is life, and no conspiracy over 50 people can ever exist. You know? Yeah. You're never uh, going to get close right. to it's, it. Yeah, uh, ontologically it, impossible for there to be a conspiracy of over 50 people, as we know. <laughs> um, yeah. 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 And interesting think- about Carl Oglesby that, yeah, I, I thought it would be interesting to mention is that he was like in SDS. I don't know if you mentioned that, but yeah, he was like in SDS, but he kind of got like phased out of SDS for being like uh, a little bit too bourgeois in his mentality mm. and not, you know, reading settlers. No, but I, I mean, I, I don't know. I feel, it seemed like he, <laughs> he seems like he almost did read settlers or like the equivalent, but uh, I guess he was kind of like the Sean P. McCartney of his time. Sorry. That was, well, that was, I mean, I guess he wasn't, uh, wasn't. Yeah. Cause he was all about like alliances. He loved like Murray Rothbard. Interesting. And, uh, oh, he, he wanted to really do like, Kind of, so oh, I see. He wanted to like align with some like paleo conservatives or something to kind of uh, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I mean his politics are kind of slippery. Also, I forget if we mentioned it at the very beginning. Did we mention it, or were we talking about it before we recorded about how he has such a similar background to people like Pynchon and Kurt Vonnegut and Chomsky himself, in that he started out working in the technical writing division at Bendix Systems oh, as a yeah, defense contractor. Oh, right, yeah, he was a... Right, 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 yes. Mm-hmm. Until 1965? Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And and so he he worked for... Um, yeah, he worked for a defense contractor. He actually headed the technical writing division. That's, like, very Pynchon-esque. Mm-hmm. And was kind of like... This is in the late 50s, and he really wasn't to he was just like a middle class corporate man like he didn't really think too much about yeah. politics and um and also like he knew apparently that you know Bendix was designing systems to distribute chemicals and poisons over the Vietnamese jungle but he was quote not above his work at Bendix and you know didn't really think uh i guess uh he was working as a writer for the Wes Vivian congressional campaign in 64 was asked to produce a position paper on Vietnam in case the issue came up. And I guess that gave him like a crash course in Vietnamese history. And yeah, I guess that's how he found his way to the SDS and then kind of got, um, but this is, this is an interesting thing that I guess informed this book. It said his first, uh, ideological struggle this is in the UMass website, by the way, of his that holds his papers. Uh, UMass Ambers said his first I- real ideological struggle with his middle class lifestyle and career came the previous year when President Kennedy was assassinated. Despite the fact that he and his colleagues faced a looming deadline, Oglesby was concerned that the flag had not been lowered as a sign of respect to the fallen president. When he tried to urge management at Bendix to lower the flag to half mast, he encountered a strange scene in which the executive seemed to actually be celebrating Kennedy's death. And, uh, yeah, that was, that like started him off, I guess, on this feeling of, uh, 
yikes, uh, these people are psychos, and they love that Kennedy's dead, <laughs> you know, which I think, uh, yeah, makes a lot of sense. Uh, but then, yeah, he was in mm-hmm. SDS, and he was close to Bernadine Dorn, who I think broke off, and I think wasn't Bernadine Dorn the one, well, one, I think Bernadine she was like... Bernadine Dorn uh, is like Aaron Sorkin's go-to name yes. for like a crazy leftist. But like, I think uh, she she's like in, Weatherman, she's in, uh, no, no, she's in the, what is it, the trial of the Chicago 7. I believe, but like she's been completely reformed into like a cool kind of hippie badass like Radlib kind of character who's just like a sidekick, of course, you know, of like all the badass male hero. I mean, everybody's kind of turned into like a super just like West Wingy you liberal, mean, like a fictionalized thing. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, it's uh, like you know with Sasha Baron Cohen and all those people. Yeah, she's uh-huh, like a uh-huh. the, you know kind of plays like the secretary uh, like in Chicago. But you know the thing is like well one I think she I'm pretty sure she gave the very infamous quote in 1969 when SDS was kind of like splintering and all this crazy shit was happening right after the Manson murders where she said like groovy like that was like did you see what those yeah. righteous dudes right. like did to those pig yeah, rich yeah, people yeah, yeah. like right. good mm-hmm. like awesome yeah well let me see if i could find it's like too good uh the weathermen dig charles manson declared benedict dorsten <laughs> dig it first they killed those pigs then they ate dinner in the same room with them they even shoved a fork into a victim's stomach wild uh she claims now <laughs> that this was an ironic joke she was saying like lol critical support for the manson family but i guess uh her split I with oglesby could see a uh, contemporary leftist doing that and being like yeah. yeah we love charles manson i mean they killed those pigs right like dig it we're yeah, so right? violent and everything so like why wouldn't we support him right yes that's and what in you fact think, you know this was this, you know yeah, uh, yeah, th- yeah. this was th- that was the same year uh, that she she broke off with Bill Ayers, uh, Obama's uh, spiritual mentor, and, uh, you know, <coughs> basically formed the, the Weather Underground. And that was, I guess, Oglesby was unhappy in 1969 when she, along with other key members of the SDS, decided that their principle of engaging only in nonviolent protests was no longer an effective way to achieve their goals. So they needed to have LSD orgies and blow up, like, random buildings. Um, so they been to go ban to bomb post offices and other government properties, and they killed three of their own members in blowing, I guess, building a bomb in a Greenwich Village safe house in 1971. So, uh, yeah, you know, it seems pretty adventure. Uh, that's real adventurism hours uh, up in here. Mm-hmm. And I guess, you know, Oglesby just thought like, okay, the SDS is like dead now. They're st- st- stupid. But then he started in 1972, the Assassination Information Bureau, which started looking into JFK, RFK, and Martin Luther King's murders. And uh, mm-hmm. that's eventually what, what led to this book. I'm not sure really what he did after that, but I guess he did. In 1988, he formed the Institute for Continuing Denazification, word, uh, <laughs> which was all about a- organizing efforts to bring full public disclosure to the top secret government documents containing information about the relationship between the Galen organization and the U.S. government. He filed multiple lawsuits. And uh, I guess uh, his lawsuit has been moving through the federal court system for over two decades, Um, but it has resulted in the release of thousands of pages of classified top secret government documents, uh, which form the backbone uh, of his research on the Galen Org. And uh, but I guess he 
I, he might still be alive, actually. Oh, no, he died of he died of lung cancer in 2011. Yes. Bummer. He never got to write that book about the Galen Org, I guess, that he was chasing. Hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. But you know what? I think, you know, even though not a uh, Marxist, not a tanky, um, not a Muslim either. So, but I not think we can Muslim, say no. that... No, he doesn't I mention think, Islam at all in this whole book. Uh, but he, he so. was raised religious. I don't know. He was accused of being atheist, but he wasn't, uh, I guess, an atheist, ultimately. Um, but I, wow. think, I think... Remember the time this, when you could be accused of being atheist? <laughs> like, yeah, you know, he exists, uh, right? And not just, like, celebrated for it? Yeah, um, not celebrated for, uh, yeah, gyrating on Satan's lap. Uh <laughs> It's, you're yeah. more likely to be accused of not like loving it when someone sexually like profanes their themselves before like the dark prince like are, you're not clapping hard enough uh excuse me are you okay uh <laughs> do you need me to call you seek help uh, seek help yeah you're exactly. not loving this um, seek help yeah yeah exactly. uh, hello um, police uh he wasn't <laughs> clapping <laughs> i think there's a space for oglesby on the subliminal jihad bookshelf on the good bookshelf not the bad one yeah um, mm-hmm. i think he did some good right. work here i think his his ontology his dialectical ontology i think is is pretty um you know while i i don't know if we can directly apply it today it helps me understand these things like a little bit better because if donald trump is connected to literally like the cowboy mafia thing that was going on you know down in the bahamas maybe elsewhere there could be certain continuities there but i do feel like between the 80s and the 90s there's like a blacked out period where it's not exactly clear still what precisely kind of happened with like the mafia deep state relationship because suddenly they're kind of going after all these cosa nostra people in the 80s people like uh james comey and bob Mueller and rudy giuliani all these like sus prosecutors made their careers off of getting tough on the mob but that was after mm-hmm. 40 years of just like denying that they existed and totally like collaborating with them. <laughs> so it's like, what happened? Right. You know, we've mm-hmm. talked about that before. Did they not, uh, did they find a better deal elsewhere? Did they become expendable? Hard to say, but um, definitely yeah. the alliance of like crime and like the different ruling classes. I think very great point that he made that, uh, the triumph over communism could only be accomplished by allying with the criminal underworld because they were the only people that were capable on like a almost like yeah, a street fighting level. Yeah, I feel like that's level. a common like fantasy, you know, like uh, of like because they have a sense of honor, you know, like yeah. uh, it's like this mm-hmm. weird thing. Like I feel like that has a cultural uh, ripple as well, where it's like yes. this this like wor- reverence for like organized crime figures that like yeah they would team up with us patriots like if a push came to shove or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, like well uh, hey at least they're anti-Nazi, uh, you know, like. Like that, yeah. that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, even in the Howard Hughes produced uh, original Scarface, uh, you know, right. the, you get the the bad boy romanticization. Jason Horsley talked, you know, I think we read a little bit uh, in our Polanski episode, but Jason Horsley talking about the propensity to make movies about like romanticized criminals and that, you know, what is what is really the root of Hollywood's like fascination of the band of, you know, valorizing the bandit, the desperado, the outlaw. And I think, you know, I think there is something there, 
you know, and maybe that also goes back to the frontier mythology that stays like embedded in people's brains is that, you know, uh, at the end of the day, an outlaw is also a settler. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And like, and you need a bad man uh, out on those planes to do genocide and like intimidate people into like buying all the land so you can have a railroad monopoly or something. We will get to that. There is a book. Maybe when we do our uh, our Molly's app, I'll 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 find that PDF I have of the uh, like the making of the Great American Fortunes, which just mm-hmm. describes like the brutal, very like there will be blood esque like primitive accumulation of the American West and how they just like it like it was all basically crime. I mean, well, on the level of being like genocide and land theft, it's like a, a world historical crime, but also just in level of like violating the, the actual laws that were on the books in America. Like everything was so incredibly corrupt. Like you could, you could bribe a, a surveyor. There was a thing about like five men bought most of the open land in California by hiring corrupt surveyors to incorrectly classify like grazing land as a swamp. And then if it was a swamp, it was worth like 10 cents on the dollar. So they just had people going around saying like, that's a swamp. And then like bought it (laughs) and then immediately jacked the price up, but like not a swamp anymore. And like, you know, yeah, like a handful of men were basically able to go in and just do that. And for an entire gigantic state. So that's the kind of you know thing. It's hard hard to get off a you know that that that's a hell of a drug. It's hard to just get off that once once the frontier runs out. So I think now we're in the process of just like endlessly inventing or like envisioning new frontier, like constructing new frontiers or turning things into mm-hmm. a frontier. Like when you're a settler, like you know hammer and a nail. Like when you're a settler, everything looks like a frontier. Um, that you have to settle, <laughs> you know? Yes, uh, true, yeah. yeah. When you're a settler, everything does look like a frontier. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, you see it in Silicon yeah. Valley, you see it all over the place, so, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Uh, uh, next interesting. Uh, next Kennedy episode is going to be the S.K. Bain Kennedy episode. Uh, well, you got to do King Kill... Uh, well, uh, we you're, maybe not S.K. Bain himself, 33, but, like, yeah. King Kill 33. I think I, Well, eventually I'm, we I'm do intrigued. have to do, uh, you know, his Kennedy book, whatever it's called. Most Dangerous, is that what it's called? It's just called Most Dangerous. Uh, really? Yes. Uh, I didn't realize he had a whole book about Kennedy. Uh, well, it's kind of about Kennedy. Yeah, it's, you know, yeah, it's kind of about Kennedy. It's kind of like autobiographical. We talked about it a little bit in our original one. Okay. And uh, yeah, the cover just has like a, a Kennedy, like a uh, 50 cent piece. That's how much the Kennedy things are worth, right? They're not dollars or 50 cents. I uh, think they were 50 cents. Really, yeah. yeah, Kennedy yeah, half dollar. Remember. But yeah, mm-hmm. on the cover with like flames all around it uh, with a forward <laughs> by Peter Lavenda. Hey, uh, oh, okay. You know, once again, Interesting. yeah. Interesting. I'm surprised uh, he trusts Peter Lavenda, but that is intriguing. Uh, no, I think he definitely does trust him. He he also wrote the forward to most dangerous book in the world. Yeah. So. Yes, he did. I don't know, You're but right. maybe not um, for blackjack. So. Uh, not for blackjack, but yeah, we yeah, will we will come back too. to. It's still it's a gargantuan concept. I feel like everybody, especially this is this is for the Alwar frequency. I feel like most people in the grotto are like to like some level of JFK pilled already. And yes, know why true. it's bullshit, the official story. Mm-hmm. But uh, this yeah. is a cool ontological framework for viewing it in like a broader context of kind of American yeah, like true. socioeconomic mm-hmm. history. 
And, yes, uh, the Yankee and Cowboy yeah, framework. Yeah, as much yeah, as, as bad as the capitalists are, they do bicker with one another at times. And I guess, you know, I mean, if you think about it, the inter-imperial bickering between the European powers caused World War One, which was horrible, but I think you could make a fair argument that the Russian Revolution would not have happened, certainly not the way it did, if it hadn't been for the imperialists, like, taking it a step too far and just engaging in this, like, you know basically mass sacrifice ritual of uh sending all their working young people to go kill each other you know for five years mm-hmm. uh so i guess that's some way of saying like they probably have very horrible plans for us and but they also a house divided against itself is at least slightly vulnerable and their shaitanic yes. instincts could also could always lead them to uh do damage to one another that I'm not even going to be that optimistic and say, you know, then like uh, we don't we don't have a Lenin that could hop on a train and then like give a say no support for the provisional government and like uh, come up with all the right ideas and like, you know, kick out Kerensky. We're in a much tougher situation. No, we don't. <laughs> Basically. We, we yeah. Do but not. still, uh, uh, it's, it's good to point out that like they're not always just like completely maybe in the same smoke filled room all plotting everything together there are i think that's like there are fault line there are frictions contradictions that can uh maybe be i don't know if they can be exploited but they're worth paying attention to mm-hmm. well uh, i guess we can uh leave it there but uh yeah yeah highly highly recommend uh checking this book out it's a good yeah. summary i think of both watergate is sus and the jfk yeah is for those it's like pretty mm-hmm. concise. It is a good uh, summary of that, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're JFK pilled already, the Watergate stuff was mostly new to me, and I feel like there's a lot of sus like connections with Howard Hughes that might be appealing, like from an SJ perspective. So totally. Yeah, and it's yeah. you know it's an interesting meta historical piece as well because like it was written at a certain time, and you can really see like uh you know the way things were understood then, and the notes also you know are very thorough, like the the mm-hmm. footnotes. Uh, well, you know some of them are just citations, but but a lot of them have, have longer sort of, you know, discussions of, of things uh, that I guess were written after the actual manuscript, you know, so mm-hmm. uh, they're they're valuable. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, at least definitely. The, the version that I have. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I guess the Berkeley one, edition is the one that I have. Yeah. Pretty easy uh, to find online, too, thankfully. It's not not like uh, yeah. Control Candy Jones, where it's, like, impossible. You can uh, yeah, you know, go to your favorite not, yeah. uh, not endorsed, uh, you know, place where you find books uh, online yeah. <laughs> for free, and you will probably be able to find it. I'll just, I'm just going to leave it at that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but good stuff. All right, so... Word. That's all for us, and uh, until next time, dear listeners, stay vigilant. Peace. Ladies and gentlemen, pull out your hankies. Luke Garrett was the pride of the Yankees. Mothers and daddies, wrap up your children.